Okay. Everybody's very welcome to this afternoon's Executive Office Committee meeting. Uh, members, just to begin with item one, which is the apologies. I have received apologies from the Deputy Chairman, John Stewart, uh, and also I have received uh, apologies from the new member that I'm about to welcome in Chairman's remarks, but we've received an apology from Diane Dodds. Um, so then moving on to item two, uh, which is Chairman's Business. Um, I will also uh, maybe just begin by uh, just offering condolences to the family of Gordon Dunn, um, who was one of our uh, colleague MLAs. Uh, Gordon passed away, and, and um, although he didn't serve on any of the committees or the predecessor committees of the Executive Office, I'm sure that everybody is thinking of his family at this time. Um, we also have... Gary Middleton, who has been appointed as a junior minister, uh, and Paul Given, who has been appointed first minister. Uh, I think we're very much in the terms of adding this week at the end of all of those appointments, but that's where we are at this stage. We will certainly acknowledge them uh, and wish those, uh, those in their roles well for whatever length of time they are in them. And I certainly am not sure if people will be in them long enough to be brought up and uh, brief the committee on various issues, but we can discuss that in due course. We have also been uh, informed that Trevor Clark has been moved from our committee um, and that he has been replaced by Diane Dodds. Uh, and just to highlight, as I say, that Diane has offered her apologies for today, uh, but hopefully she will on, be on board with us for uh, meetings in the future, and we wish her well with that. So certainly thank Trevor for his service to the committee and welcome Diane on board. So a little bit of sort of internal housekeeping with the committee there on the chairman's business. Uh, item three. There are draft minutes uh, from the meeting that's held on the 9th of June, and they're at page six of the meeting pack. And then there's an amended, uh, which is of the concurrent meeting, which was from the 16th of June, which is in the table pack. Are members content that they are a true representation of those meetings? Okay. Grant, thank you. Uh, in terms of item four, matters arising, not, not especially anything on our matters arising, but I think that there is a matter arising from the meeting which we referenced last week and we have correspondence from the Communities Committee, but I think we, we'll, because they have written to us, we'll deal with it under correspondence at the end of the meeting. So, uh, members, if we're happy, then we can move to item five. Item five is the historical institutional abuse to the Assembly Research and Information Service. On pages 23 to 63 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers. And if we could ask maybe for Stephen uh, Orm, who's the research officer, maybe if he could be brought up into, yep, he's there, up into the spotlight. Um, and maybe what we'll do, Stephen, if we could pass over to yourself to give us uh, a little introduction to the research that you have put together and then if required then afterwards we can get members to ask and seek any clarification that they require. So we'll pass over to yourself Stephen, thank you very much. No problem, um, afternoon everyone. So this briefing will cover, as the Chair kind of alluded to, um, this briefing will cover the paper provided to the committee um, which in essence compares the HIA redress board um, first with other HIA redress schemes in other countries 
Um, and then second with the Troubles Permanent Disabled Pension Scheme, which is more commonly referred to as the Victims Payment Scheme or the Victims Pension Scheme. Um, so the committee made this request to the research service in May um, following some previous committee engagement with victims and survivors groups. I'm also aware that I developed this paper in the context of the committee uh, considering a motion calling for a review of the redress board's operations. So while this report is entirely desk-based research, it might be of use to the framing of that motion. Um, so the main body of the paper is, I'm very aware, quite lengthy, and I know the chair referred to pages 23 to 63, so it's, um, there's, it's quite a substantial paper. Um, that's kind of because it draws out comparisons on effectively every stage of the HIA redress process in Northern Ireland. Um, I won't list all of those, but it kind of runs from eligibility and application and decision makers through to award levels and then appeal processes and things like that. And the aim was really to be as exhaustive as possible in the main body of the paper um, and then draw out the important material for the committee and the key points section at the, at the head of the paper. Um, so my presentation will focus on those key points. So the Historical Institutional Abuse Inquiry um, published its report, also known as the Heart Report, in January 2017, um, and that was shortly before the Executive and Assembly entered um, its most recent hiatus. Uh, the HIA Redress Board was eventually created by an act of the UK Parliament in 2019, um, following engagement with the Northern Irish political parties directly. Um, that act, along with some further rules and guidance, effectively establishes how the Redress Board operates. So, as I say, how it receives and considers applications, gathers further evidence, um, hears appeals, and so on. Before the UK Parliament passed the Act, um, the Executive Office consulted on the legislation kind of in late 2018 and early 2019. And there are several instances where the Act that was passed actually differs from the majority views expressed in that consultation. And these are kind of worth flagging at this stage because they're relevant when I go on to compare the Redress Board to other HIA schemes. Um, so some of the cases where the Act was different from majority consultation views were in the, uh, the judicial nature of the Redress Board, um, its decision makers and the application and appeal processes it uses, and the evidence and the hearing processes available, uh, and then finally how payments are calculated and structured. So in terms of comparison, after some discussion with committee staff, I looked in detail at HIA redress schemes and inquiries in England and Wales, Scotland, the Republic of Ireland, Canada, and Australia. And um, in England and Wales, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse is ongoing. Um, and there's no redress scheme within England and Wales that is comparable to the Northern Irish HIA redress board. However, there are comparable schemes in the other places looked at. And across those, there were some notable differences. As I say, comprehensive detail in those is in the paper. Um, for the purposes of this um, of this presentation, I'll try to walk through the cycle of a typical or a you know a, a possible application and appeal process and flag the major differences between the Northern Irish scheme and the other schemes as I do that. So firstly, in terms of applications, um, applications to the Northern Irish Board are in writing uh, and applicants can include other documentary evidence along with that. Um, and in addition to that, where an applicant has previously engaged with the HIA inquiry or the Heart Report and um, whatever title we use, they can ask the Redress Board to just rely on that information and not have to submit anything further, at least initially. Um, some other schemes are flexible in other ways in terms of applications. In the Republic of Ireland, uh, applicants could choose between a written or an oral application. 
And in Australia, uh, applicants are able to make use of pre-provided words and phrases um, when trying to describe the impact that abuse has had on them. Um, the next step then, so in terms of decision makers, as I kind of touched on, in Northern Ireland, the decision makers are broadly judicial in nature. Uh, current or former judges chair the decision making panels uh, and individual judges then would consider any appeals. The other redress schemes that were considered don't generally require a judicial or legal background in the same way. Um, legal experience is certainly one of the criteria used, but it tends to be one of multiple and it's not absolutely necessary. Um, some of the other criteria are things like expertise in trauma, uh, social work, counselling, child protection and other things like that. So then thirdly then, uh, the Northern Irish assessment process starts with the written application, as I say, Judge-led panels consider that, but can also permit and compel, if they feel necessary, fresh evidence, um, including oral hearings, which uh, the board itself would describe in their guidance as non-adversarial, but also direct and sometimes probing. Um, other schemes generally also consider some mixture of written and oral evidence, but some of them have flexibilities in that front. So, for example, to look at Canada, again, um, applicants can choose the location of any oral hearings within reason, to ensure as relaxed and comfortable a setting as possible for that sort of a session. Um, then, so in terms of awards, in Northern Ireland, awards are for £10,000 to £80,000 for each successful applicant. All the other redress schemes that I looked at had higher cash awards. Uh, in Scotland, which is kind of the closest in terms of its legislative structure, awards could reach up to £100,000. Um, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, awards were for up to €300,000 and could exceed that in certain circumstances. Um, Canadian pounds could reach $275,000 and sometimes further sums were available on top of that. And Australian payments um, max out at $155,000. So in terms of awards as well, one notable difference, and I know one thing that victims and survivors groups have raised, is uh, in Canada, they have a different payment structure for one of the elements. Um, so one element of the Canadian scheme is the common experience payment. And within that element of the Canadian scheme, an applicant doesn't have to demonstrate or prove um, that they suffered abuse individually. They'll get $10,000 solely for having attended um, a relevant residential school and a further $3,000 for every year spent there. Um, so. Moving on from the award, in terms of review or appeal, in Northern Ireland, appeals must be lodged within three weeks of a decision being received. Individual judges consider appeals as a say and can request and compel further evidence, um, including oral evidence, in exactly the same way as the original um, application and assessment process. In other schemes, the applicants typically have a bit longer, so one to six months, to request a review. And as I mentioned earlier, the decision makers in the other schemes aren't necessarily legal professionals as they are in Northern Ireland. And um, beyond that, some of the other differences are in Canada, reviews wouldn't include any further oral evidence at all. Um, and in Scotland, a review can't reduce the original offer in any way. So there's no risk of an applicant losing out um, by appealing in Scotland. And then finally, uh, in Northern Ireland, an applicant remains entitled to compensation even if they have been convicted of an offence. Um, and this, this particular point kind of sits outside the, the time scale or the, the journey through an application. And that's why I've kind of tacked it on at the end here. Um, so in Northern Ireland, you remain eligible, even if you've uh, got uh, a criminal offence. Some of the other schemes considered were more strict on that front. So 
In Scotland, um, if an applicant is convicted of a serious offence, the panel must determine if it's in the public interest to award the money at all before their application can proceed. Um, in Australia, meanwhile, you can't apply from jail uh, or if you've ever been sentenced to more than five years for any one offence. So those are some of the main differences between the HIA redress board in Northern Ireland and the other HIA redress schemes that were considered. Um, I'll now turn to the Victims Payment Scheme. Uh, as the committee will be aware, the UK Parliament passed the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Act in 2019, and that required the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to make regulations in a number of um, normally devolved areas. So specifically abortion, uh, same-sex marriage and victims' payments. The victims' payments regulations came into force in May 2020, but due to a number of delays, the scheme is not yet open to applications. At the minute, they're hoping to have it open from the end of August of this year. So the paper compares the HAA redress board with the victims' payment scheme. Again, the comprehensive detail is in the paper, but for the purposes of this, um, I'll repeat the process of kind of flagging the major differences uh, in a typical application award and appeal kind of journey and try not to repeat myself too much from the earlier comparisons. So firstly, in terms of eligibility, um, a person can apply to the HIA redress board if they suffered abuse while a child in a residential institution in Northern Ireland any time between 1922 and 1995, and both those years uh, inclusive, effectively. In some ways, eligibility for the victim's payment scheme is slightly broader. Um, a person is eligible for that scheme if they suffered permanent disablement of at least 14% from a troubles-related incident, and that could have taken place anywhere across the UK and in certain circumstances, anywhere across Europe as well. So then, secondly, in terms of decision makers, I touched on the fact earlier that the HAA process, um, the decision makers are quite judicial in nature and uh, in their professional background. The victim's payment scheme is quite similar. Um, normally one legal member, a barrister or a solicitor of five years standing, will make victim's payments decisions. In some circumstances, medical experts and ordinary members with other relevant expertise will be added to kind of larger panels. Uh, and then finally, the Victims Payments Board can actually delegate the decisions of a legal member to staff. So because that scheme isn't up and running yet, we can't say to what extent uh, the Victims Payments Board will use that, uh, that ability to delegate decisions to staff. But in broad terms, uh, the Victims Payments Scheme is also quite uh, judicial in nature. So then in terms of applications, and specifically in terms of the timescale, HIA redress board applications must be submitted within five years of the scheme opening. And I know that the commissioner uh, has previously expressed concern to the committee with the current time skills for processing those applications. Victims payments applications must also be submitted within five years, but there's a bit more flexibility there. Uh, so late applications are permitted in certain circumstances, and the Secretary of State also has the power to extend that overall five-year window for victims' payments applications, and that would be for all applicants. And um, then, so in terms of prioritizing the applications when they come in, the Victims' Payments Board approach to prioritization is slightly narrower than the HIA redress boards. The HIA board must take into account, so is required to take into account, all age and available health information when prioritizing. The Victims Payments Board can also do this, but they're not actively required to. The Victims Payments Board is only specifically required to prioritise applicants who disclose that they are terminally ill. Um, 
So then next step in terms of assessment, as I mentioned earlier, HIA decision-making panels can hold oral evidence sessions. Initial assessments by the Victims Payment Scheme do not include oral hearings in any way. Um, it's purely a review of documentary evidence and examinations and assessments by a healthcare professional. If a victim's payments application goes to appeal, then uh, oral hearings can be used at that stage, but no earlier. Then in terms of awards, as I say, I've mentioned a couple of times that HIA awards are 10 to 80,000 pounds, and those are lump sums. Um, the victim's payment scheme, or as is material here, the, the victim's pension scheme, is a continuous kind of indefinite payment. At the minute, that would currently range from around two to 10,000 pounds per year, uh, depending on the degree of permanent disability that the applicant has or has suffered. Um, so then in terms of appeal, uh, and specifically in terms of the time scale of appeal, where HIA applicants have three weeks to lodge an appeal, victims payment applicants have up to a year. And on top of that, the victims payments board has the power to permit appeals after this. Um, and then there's just a couple of points that kind of sit outside the time scale, or sit outside, pardon me, sit outside the, the typical journey of, you know, application assessment appeal that I'll touch on now. Um, in terms of being convicted of an offence, as I said earlier, HAA board, if you've been convicted of an offence, you can still apply. A person cannot apply for victims payments if they have a conviction for the troubles incident, uh, which has caused their application. In addition, uh, the Victims Payments Board can choose to withhold victims payments for certain other convictions and also another what are called exceptional circumstances in the legislation. So there are a few ways in which um, a history of kind of criminal offences or criminal convictions can knock you out of the running for victims payments effectively. Um, in terms of when you've reached a previous settlement, when you've reached a previous settlement and you apply for HIA redress, it's fairly simple, the value of the previous settlement is simply taken out of the final award with some adjustments for uh, inflation. The same system applies to victims payments, but the way it works is slightly more generous to the applicant. So if an applicant for victims payments has a previous settlement, um, this will be taken into account in their final award, but the victims payments board must calculate what that person would have received if they'd been getting their victims pension from the time they were injured and then exempt all of that money from any reduction. So it's slightly complicated, but that effectively would significantly reduce how much they would actually lose as a result of a previous settlement. So in practice, they would likely lose much less than a, a typical HIA applicant. Um, and then finally, uh, in terms of these comparisons, as I'm sure they'll be glad to hear, uh, there's a point that I know victims groups have raised and that the committee raised in its request um, in terms of the treatment of payments. So HIA redress payments are disregarded or in plain English ignored for the purposes of tax, national insurance, means-tested benefits, car home cost support and means-tested legal aid. However, the HIA Act only applies to Northern Ireland. This appears to simply have been a mistake but nonetheless, it has resulted in HIA applicants who live in Great Britain receiving an award only to see it hit by tax and national insurance, and sometimes losing you know, all of those means-tested payments because all of the relevant agencies don't have that uh, exemption in their law, and they see this you know, lump of cash, and it knocks them out of those benefits. As of the end of May, uh, the Department for Work and Pensions advised the research service that they are working with colleagues in the Northern Ireland Office and the NI Civil Service to resolve that. 
So it's unclear what form that will take, whether it's legislation or administrative fixes or some combination of those. Victims' payments then, by way of comparison then, are different. Um, they're disregarded across the whole of the UK, so the victims' regulations don't have the same problem. It is worth noting, however, that victims' payments are only disregarded in a much narrower set of circumstances. Um, victims' payments specifically are disregarded for the purposes of means-tested benefits, benefit recovery schemes, car home costs, and repayment of criminal injury compensation. And that effectively means that victims' payments are subject to tax and national insurance and would be considered when means testing for legal aid. So that's the bulk of my presentation. Um, I can't see your faces at the minute, but um, I'm absolutely aware that I've talked about a very wide range of stages of the HIA redress process in Northern Ireland, and I've compared them with six other schemes overall. So I really do appreciate that I've covered a lot of ground there, and there's a lot more material in, in the bulk of the paper itself. If I can just try to tie this together in conclusion, there were two lessons that kind of jumped out from the research. So firstly, there's no one scheme that I could point to and say that's the best one. You know, there's no scheme to broadly or indiscriminately endorse, and there's no scheme that other actors or governments or uh, parliaments kind of point to as the best one. Um, you've heard me mention each of the Republic of Ireland, Scotland, Canada, Australia, and then the Victims Payment Scheme specifically sometimes to note where they're more flexible than the HIA redress board approach, and sometimes to note where they're actually more restrictive than the re redress board approach. And that really highlights the fact that there are pockets of good or interesting practice in each of those places. Every scheme has fundamentally wrestled with the need to deliver the process and the outcome in a way that is empathetic and sensitive to applicants and their experiences but also the parallel need to deliver a scheme that's robust and credible. And you know that meaning that compensation only goes to those who qualify for it and victims and observers can have confidence in the, in the robustness and the security of the process. And that's really what I've tried to draw out in the key points of the paper and, and in the presentation. And then secondly, and very briefly, I would hope this is of value in relation to the committee motion in terms of uh, review of the redress board operations. As I've said, this paper came from desk-based research, which is largely, although not entirely, what the research service would provide in this context. A deeper review, um, maybe by the Redress Board itself or by the Executive Office as its sponsor, could engage with those other schemes and their staff as peers uh, and consider their workings more qualitatively or in more depth than I've been able to. Um, so, for instance, asking, say, the Australian scheme why a given rule or process is the way it is and what their experience of implementing that has been and uh, what we can learn from it. And um, so this paper might assist the committee in its framing of the motion in that way. Um, so look, that's me. As I say, I'm very, very aware that I covered a lot there. I'm absolutely happy to go back to any of the specifics and then answer any other questions that I'm able to. So um, thank you for your attention. Stephen, thank you very much for that very detailed presentation. And I suppose to begin, I think it's really important that we acknowledge and understand always that at the centre of this are victims and survivors and are people who have had their lives ruined and their lives significantly impacted um, and have had a, a terrible journey that, that should not uh, have taken place. Um, and that we just remember always that the, those the, that there are people behind all of these statistics and, and all of these discussions that, that we have. But um, I, I I get a sense 
from the evidence that you have prepared that in terms of a, a sort of albeit a crude comparison i just find that the other schemes that are being referenced are generally easier to apply for the panels are less judicious the settings are more survivor centered where they meet with them due to them in some instances being able to suggest where people meet the awards are generally higher in value the appeals are easier and there's more time to conduct them the deductions and adjustments that are made are harsher for those in the historical institutional abuse uh, sector and those that are outside uh, of northern ireland are being harshly punished uh, and will have impact upon maybe their current circumstances which could render the whole process um, useless for them to be honest and whenever we package all that together that doesn't even start for us what we're doing in our next section which is to potentially look at how that process is actually carried out as opposed to these comparisons and i really um hear what you were saying about no single scheme is best or probably an eclectic approach a, a little bit of this scheme a little bit of that scheme put together but um, maybe you could confirm for me, but my understanding would be that our scheme is the latest scheme and that our scheme, when it was being constructed, would have had the benefit of all of those other schemes being in place to be able to draw on those experiences when shaping the scheme for ourselves. Would, would that be correct? Um, I think off the top of my head, I wouldn't have the start and end dates. They're all variable, I would say. so, And that's kind of why comparisons in terms of applications or awards weren't really possible because the, the time scales of all of them were different. I would say the Scottish one, um, I hope I got my tenses right when I was talking, but the Scottish one hasn't started yet. So I was working off the legislation, which is completely done. It's just not commenced yet. The Australian one, I think, started in 2019. So maybe marginally ahead of us, but probably too close to our own start date for the HIA redress board to get much out of it. So they've only been up and running not that long. The Republic of Ireland one, was closed by 2012, so definitely it would have been available. And the Canadian scheme, um, which was the, to give it its full title, was the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, because it dealt specifically with um, uh, those settings. It was, again, much earlier, so it would have been available, yeah. But uh, to touch on kind of your broader point, I'm aware that in, in, the, in the key points of the paper and in the presentation, I've kind of focused on where there are differences. Um, I think the only point in the presentation and also in the paper where I said something actively about all of the other schemes I looked at was in the awards. In most of the other facets, um, it's not like the HAA board is doing one thing and everybody else is doing something better. As I say, and as you, as you touched on yourself there, um, it is just the case that you could really pick and choose from different places, doing individual bits and pieces of the process more flexibly uh, or more uh, and, and hope anyway more empathetically uh, to the applicant in that way. Okay. And in terms of the, the the legislation that was there, did you see any difference between the legislation that was prepared for the HIA versus the legislation that was prepared for the victim's payment in terms of were they broadly similar or was one more detailed than the other? Was one more prescriptive than the other? Not not really. Again, I suppose the victim's payment scheme is uh, came later or is still kind of under construction. So the main differences between the two 
pieces of legislation as such. Um, first of all, and on the technical point, I don't want to belittle this by saying that's a technical point, but it is. Yeah. Um, the issue with the uh, HAA recipients and GBE being affected by these uh, disregards not applying to them, the Victims Payment Scheme, I can only presume that whoever drafted that saw that that had happened and made sure it didn't happen with the Victims Payments Regulations. As I say, that's a technical issue, but it's a major one. You know, it's one that they do are looking at. The other big difference is because of the nature of what the Victims Payment Scheme is compensating for, um, there is quite a medical element to the assessment process. Um, the level of detail is, it's not as though uh, there's a lot in the HIA Act that has been left to regulations and not filled in or anything like that. They're both quite prescriptive and you know not not in a bad way but they're both quite detailed in that sense um, and those those would be the main differences really okay. Stephen, thank you for that thank you for your presentation and for those answers i'm going to pass out now to some of the committee members i'm going to first go to martina anderson and if we can bring martina up into the spotlight we can pass to her for a question martina uh, thank you, Chair, and, and thank you, Stephen. And Stephen, I, I always find your research papers really, really very useful. And um, I can see from this one, as with others, you've done quite an extensive piece of work. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I would like to ask you just to see on the issue of the short window, as I would call it, of a 21 days for an appeal mm -hmm. in historical institutional abuse. Um, and given that it's only one person refuse the uh, the the appeals, is that the shortest of all of the models that you've looked at? Because it seems to me extremely short that it's only a twenty-one day turnaround. Uh, yes, I believe so. I think the other schemes that I looked at were one to six months. Um, mm -hmm. So one, the difference between twenty-one days and one month isn't that great. Um, but yes, the, the rest of them are at least a bit longer. Yeah, and then the victims payment scheme. Um, so the, the other HAA redress schemes are one to six months you have to lodge an appeal. The victim's payment scheme then, when it's up and running, will allow a year for an appeal. And then even at that, the victim's payments board will be able to extend that time scale even further if they wanted to. Okay. Now that was only what I wanted to just get confirmation that I had read that right. But again, look, thanks for the information. It's going to be very, very useful for the next two presentations as well today. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, uh, Martina. Okay, can we pass now to Trevor Lon and ask Trevor to be brought up into the spotlight, please, for his questioning, Trevor? Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, I just wanted to ask Stephen about the, the whenever the HIA Act was set up and the difference uh, in terms of what would be disregarded between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Uh, I think, Stephen, you seem to indicate that was probably a mistake, but, you know, they, there was a consultation process and uh, you know Westminster generally wouldn't make that kind of mistake. Is, is it possible that for, for whatever reason it may have been deliberate? Uh, I, I was a wee bit hesitant about saying that it was probably a mistake. It does seem that way I have to say because I was in contact with DWP myself as I alluded to in the presentation and I had seen earlier um, kind of headlines in, in uh, BBC News and other places that they are, were already aware of the issue and had said they were working to resolve it. So from that, um, you can make the assumption that it was an error, um, and I can see how an error like that uh, could be made. I'm not saying it would be an easy mistake to make, but it's possible. Um, but 
I never specifically asked, was it a deliberate policy choice or not? Uh, it just appears that from everything that DWP have said publicly and then to myself um, and in the knowledge that it would be brought to this committee. Um, they seem, you know, everything that they have said would indicate that it was in error, you know, um, and that's not to, to take away from the magnitude of it, given, you know, the effect it's having, but that seems to have been the case, but it's something that could be established, probably. Did the, the, the HIA Act at the time go through Westminster by accelerated passage, do you know, or was it... Was I don't believe so. I would need to check, but I don't think so. See, there again, I do wonder. And I, I noticed also in your paper that uh, the Department of Work and Pensions is, is working at the issue. Uh, okay, and it indicates a mistake. But why, why are they working with the Northern Ireland Civil Service and the Northern Ireland Office? <laughs> what, what, what would our input be into that situation? Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure as to the detail of it, but I, I believe... Uh, I think it'll, it's going to need to take for it to be resolved would be some uh probably some liaison with those uh institutions as the you know the the hia redress board ultimately kind of being within the northern Ireland executive structures will need to be some communication back and forth to um identify all of the people who are being affected and then as i say it'll probably take some legislation to fix it from this point forward but then how you fix it for the people who have been losing and um, they're uh, to losing some of their award to tax and national insurance and then some benefit or other means test of payments as well to sort that out in a retrospective way will probably require some active administration by dwp and um, so i think there would need to be some communication there but i, I hesitate to get out in front of what they would tell you if you know what i mean yeah no, no. okay look thanks very much uh, the information is very useful to us thank you Okay, thank you very much, Trevor. Um, just going to double check uh, with George Robinson if there's any questions from John or from George. George, have you anything you want to check out? I'm fine, Chair. I'm fine. No problem. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, listen, Stephen, that is um, us concluded with questions from members at this stage. So thank you very much. Just to echo what Martina had said, a very um, comprehensive uh, and, and very easy to follow. Uh, piece of information there, which is always appreciated uh, to be able to get the information. And we have uh, a couple of other presentations this afternoon, and the information that you have provided will be very useful uh, for that. So thank you, and um, we'll look forward to seeing you again soon for some more research. No problem. Thank you. Okay. So uh, thanks very much to Stephen there. So members, we'll move on to the next section um, of the... Uh, meeting, which is uh, item six, uh, which is the Historical Institutional Stakeholders Group Oral Evidence. And we had a number of groups um, scheduled to come in. So we've kind of followed the format that we've done previously, where we'll ask a group to come in and give us a few minutes of an input and then ask a few questions and then move to the next group, presentation questions, next group, presentation questions, and then, then we'll bring everybody in together should there be anything that members want to try and get some clarification on. So the papers are on pages uh, 65 to 68 of the meeting pack, uh, and there's some more information in the table pack as well, which will give members the background to this session. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for, first of all, if we could get Jerry McCann brought up into the spotlight and there is Jerry. Jerry, you're very welcome. 
Uh, good to see you. Probably only a few miles away from me, but uh, we, we yep. could never shout and hear each other. But uh, for the purposes of this, we're going via via the system installment. But it's good to see you again. You're very welcome. Um, we really appreciate all of the groups today taking the opportunity to come in and um, as informally as we can in a committee setting to give us a bit of an update on their experiences so far with the redress board. Um, and I think it's important, just maybe before you start, Jerry, because we are at the first session, that you know, we're not entering, I think, this as a committee from a, an accusational perspective on anybody. We just want to see a perfect system that works in the interest of victims and survivors. And that's why your voices are so incredibly important, because they're the center of everything. And we want to be able to listen uh, and hear your experiences today. And then afterwards, we will have uh, the redress board members and we'll be able to discuss those issues with them. So, again, full appreciation to all groups for coming on board today. Jerry, I'll pass over to yourself then if you want to give us a few minutes of an intro to your group's experiences. Hey, Colin, uh, Colin, thanks very much. Uh, thanks to the members of the committee and taking the opportunity to listen to the survivor groups. Um, I can't say, Colin, but, you know, from the outset, uh, having listened to Stephen Orr in terms of the research, um, there's a huge chasm in the various other redress schemes compared to the HIA, which is obviously very low legalistically, just in that principle alone, okay? So I just want to put that out as a footnote. Um, I want, also want to acknowledge our, um, my and John's relationship with Doug Beatty, your former deputy chair, and, and then yourself, Colm, in terms of taking that and listening to survivors. And hearing the sounds and the concerns of survivors have in terms of the redress. Uh, from my perspective, uh, I'm sure many others, and even Margaret and John as well, that survivors are going through a very, very difficult journey here in terms of the legalistic process. Uh, they've been re-traumatized, re-victimized. And we, we feel at the end of the day, when survivors are going through this particular journey, that we have to take note without doing the inquiry, and particularly the stabbing inquiry, the Sir Andy Hart and his team would never have found the revelations that came out of these institutions. And therefore, the role the survivors have played has been crucial, which is a vindication of all those survivors who went through this journey. And then we go to the redress journey, and it's going back to square one, where those particularly went to the statutory inquiry are having to go through their material, where other jurisdictions are not even taking materials, you just have to be in the institution and, and you're awarded whatever amount that may be. Um, and we have found the survivors who are going through the redress is that the process is very elongated. Uh, it's it's not what um, the redress board, which has come up 47 days on average. We're talking several months in a process of an application. Uh, and then coupled with that there, if you do put an appeal in, which allowed within 21 days to make an appeal, um, that's elongated as well. And a lot of people are not putting appeals in because of the overrider that there may be a deduction in the award. And I have to put in mind that the two legislations, which is for the, the victims of the troubles and the victims of the HI, are vast. And it's it's the same team who's done the draft for the HIA and the victims of the troubles. And while Sir Anthony Hart um, done his job as chairman. Sir Rodney, with the greatest respect, uh, I know he's passed a couple of years now, 
but he shaped the redress where he made it very legalistic. And if he was looking at those jurisdictions, it is not at the same level of legalistic approach. Uh, and I personally believe that Sir Anthony stepped outside his framework, his remit, in shaping up the redress. That should have went to an independent body because when Sir Anthony had articulated on November 2015 that he would be proposing compensation scheme would be drafted and set up in place after the inquiry was completed. That was suffice. But in terms of shaping up the whole redress scheme, where survivors had to go through a solicitor because of the, the detailed application form, which for many survivors is, is very difficult to follow. Hence, the solicitor is preferably more used, but you can use other professional bodies if so be. Uh, and then because of the pandemic, a lot of survivors and solicitors are working remotely or engaging remotely and therefore not able to have that one-to-one -one where we're waiting on a call for, uh, from the solicitor or the redress board in terms of where they are in the process. Now, we do feel the biggest factor here is communication. Communication is a central component in any form or process. And the fact it's, it's severely lacking in this process and given the nature of these survivors and what they went through, uh, it's, it's a testament to them that they're still going through this process, albeit very reluctantly because they're almost so much. The past never goes away. It lives with the column. It'll not go until you go to your grave. And that's, that's the reality. But we also feel that the redress board, in its furnace, is doing the best they can within the constraints that they have. But I think in terms of survivors, that this process should be sentenced survivors and therefore the redress process should be an option for survivors, both either oral or in written submission. Now, there's very, very few oral presentations. Now, it's not for every survivor, but the options should be there for the survivor to make that choice. The fact we don't have a choice, it means that we've been suppressed into a, an area of the redress where the redress will say, go to your solicitor and he or she will let you know where you are in the system. We can't actually directly engage with the redress board. And I'm suggesting that maybe when you're speaking to the president, there's possibly a redress board helpline where survivors can make a direct contact to the redress board because they'll obviously have a redress board number and therefore they can see exactly where they are in the process. And... I just feel that given the group leaders who have been on this journey for quite considerable time uh, would have thought we would have left the stage after the legislation was completed in Royal Assent and the redress up and running, that we're still, we're now here today is a vindication of us that the system is not working and it's not centred on survivors. And I think there needs to be a serious review, an independent review, not from the TOE, an independent body coming in Stephen actually highlighted many of the issues that we have faced and it, it was a breath of fresh air that maybe we were over-exaggerating some of the concerns that we were raising. It actually validated what we have said uh, and, I, and I hope upon yourself, Chairman, and your committee members will actually process us forward to maybe take it to the Assembly for a debate and see how we can improve the process for these survivors. And finally, um, Chairman, um, 
a number of survivors unfortunately have sadly passed away and in relation to Rosetta Trust we lost five who all went through the redress process unfortunately unable to conclude the awards and what's made in their absence so that's just from my perspective but I, I thank you Mr Chairman for giving me the opportunity um, and I just feel that you know the people across the water, survivors across the water, the Department of Work and Pension has a crucial role to play. And other than that, Mr. Chairman, I'm happy enough. Jerry, thank you very much for that. And, and I appreciate that it's always a difficult situation to talk about as well. Um, and I really acknowledge from yourself and, and the other representatives just the bravery of coming on board and doing that. It is appreciated. And maybe as a question, you know, rather than maybe a, a processing question as such, because I think we can get a lot of that. Can, can I even just ask you, you know, how do you feel about the process, uh, having been through everything in, in the past, to then having the process? How do you feel now that people are going through it and, 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 and what those experiences are? Well, from what I can hear on the ground, and I'm working on the ground, a lot of survivors are finding this very traumatic for them. Uh, um, the fact is that is the redress but for purpose in terms of victim survivors? I, I honestly don't believe it. Well, the templates there, the templates are the, the shaping of, of the redress. Had we had an input, while we, we were consulted, had we had an input in the shaping of that redress, I don't think, in all honesty, the survivors would be just disappointed. The fact that, you know, that they are being listened to, that the stories are being, how can I say this, that's even the Times of Redress Board are questioning some of the supplementary material. When you're encouraged to bring it forward, it, they might say, well, you didn't say that in the statutory inquiry. Yeah. You know, the statutory inquiry was a courthouse and you might as well have been on trial. So from that point of view, I think survivors, if we were to turn the page back and, and put this process forward in how best shape it could be, it needed the input of the survivors. Thank you, Jerry. I'm going to ask Martina Anderson uh, to come up into the spotlight now for, for some questions or some clarifications. Pass over to yourself, Martina. Um, thank you, Colin. And uh, thank you, Jerry. Uh, it's thank been you. many, many years uh, since I first talked to you about this issue. And to be honest with you, my heart's sore listening to you that you're actually having to engage with us about a process that should be trauma-aware um, and you are absolutely right. You shouldn't have to sit in front of us today uh, in relation to this redress. I want to pick up on something you said about communication, Jerry. and you talked about a possible hotline. Um, has there been any engagement with the redress board from yourselves making that suggestion, for instance, about a hotline or even what I would, I think, even a caseload manager? Right. Martin direct communication with you as opposed to telling you to go off and and you know work through your solicitor yeah well unfortunately martina you're absolutely right there's no process at this moment in time where survivors have a direct line to the redress board because even when you use even use their phone it's not even answered uh, i i just feel that, that the point for survivors to, to see relieve all the anxiety and the frustrations that they could pick up a phone directly to the redress, Jim Coffey and his team. I mean, it's 36 st staff in that office, or albeit may maybe working remotely. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why a communication channel should be set up 
Recently, Martina, um, I met with Gareth Johnson uh, and some of the officials along with the commissioner, and that particular topic of conversation arised, and Gareth did take note that this would be something that they would pursue in consultation with the redress board. Um, but I think the redress, redress board, uh, particularly the president, has a role to play that if there is a, a, a failure in the system where survivors are not being uh, endeared in going forward or encouraged, then I think they're always going to be sitting in the back seat waiting for a phone call from the solicitor because they don't invariably get it from the, the redress board itself. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's the reality. Well, I think that's something, Chair, we have to pick up about this issue of communication because it's an ongoing issue. Jerry, how many times have you met with the President and the Board? Well, the new President we met on the 31st of December, and I have to be honest with you, well, Rosetta Trust let that meeting very disappointed. Uh, I, I think we got typical civil servant uh, replies, and it was just a, a meet and greet process. Uh, we raised 20 questions and eventually had through the commissioner, I had to get a re ask for a reply and write into the 20 questions that we have posed. Uh, and, and I feel that we are having to do all the chasing. I, I, I think it's it, it's affected my health, um, no doubt, I'm sure Margaret and John as well, could have been in this journey for such a long time as you mm -hmm. well highlighted earlier on. Um, we want this process that collectively all, this, all the bodies be it redress the survivor groups, the survivors themselves, the TOE, merge as one with one voice and get this process up and running properly. Um, and I just feel, Martina, when you were junior minister, um, and I know you were very keen to get this process underway, and you put a lot of work on it, and I don't think you would envisage that yeah. we're here today talking about the redress when we wanted the legislation, we wanted, we wanted the inquiry, we got that. And the amount of work you and your colleagues have done to find where we are today is a travesty. And I think it needs to be put right. And I can't thank you enough and your uh, former junior minister, Jonathan Bell, in terms of the work that you did do. And I think one thing I would, I would add, Martina, and I'm hoping you would fall behind us. While the junior ministers were uh, overseeing this inquiry in terms of getting it up and running, and not intentionally, but the junior ministers have now taken a back seat. I'm suggesting maybe re-engage with the junior ministers so the survivor groups, if they did have concerns, that the junior minister could be more proactive uh, because I think there's a duty incurred because through your good self and your former uh, colleagues that if we have that sort of connection, we could at least go to the, the junior minister and say, listen, things are not right here. Mm -hmm. and from a ministerial point of view, it can be raised at the executive. What's your thought from that? Well, Jerry, you can rest assured that that's a conversation that uh, that the Sinn Féin MLEs here will have with Declan Kearney, the junior minister, uh, going forward, and, and we'll relay that because there is an issue with communication. And I suppose for many of us, we had hoped that the redress board was going to be able to address all your concerns. But listening to you today talking about being re-traumatised um, again, uh, is certainly, certainly not that any of us wanted a journey for any of you to travel. Can I ask you, Jerry, because we had a presentation just before you come on and we were discussing the Australian redress board application process and it was in that context where you talked about, you know, being re-traumatised again, where the applicants there can circle relevant words and phrases, you know, provided 
when describing the impact of the abuse. And does that sound like a sort of a better system for those who are struggling to recount their abuse so that they're not re-traumatized, so people aren't, again, re-victimized as a consequence and, you know, are receiving sort of, you know, lesser awards as a result uh, because they shouldn't have to be re-traumatized in order to get an award? Yeah, Martina, 100%. I, I, I think in all honesty that, that the shaping of the process, when I look at the Australian one, the Canadian one, uh, and even, even in Wales, that they don't have those particular barriers, okay? Mm-hmm. And the question I would ask, and I think it was alluded early on, was this a deliberate ploy in terms of the legislation and so forth, that the shaping of the legislation and the redress, that, that, that we feel at the end of the day, had we bought into those other jurisdictions and marred all that in as one collectively, where it is, wasn't intrusive, it wasn't really traumatic for, for a lot of survivors, uh, that would have been a, a, a huge difference to survivors going forward. Like we have survivors going, who won't go forward because of the process. Now, that's not that's no, no reflection on them. The fact when they're here on the ground where some survivors are having to go through this process, they don't want any part of it. And some don't want to relive the experience anyway. So they're going to walk away from that process. But if the process had been meaning, meaningful, where they could get access to it without having gone through that quisitorial adversarial approach, then I think we would have had a redress system that was fit for purpose. Yeah, but Jerry, they shouldn't have to uh, relive the awful traumatic experiences that you saw uh, live through. And certainly when we were setting up the inquiry when I was junior minister, uh, we went to um, engage with a lot of the boards in the south of Ireland. We we looked at what was happening in Scotland. We we not we didn't just research. We compared what was happening and we learned from that. And that was for the setting up of the inquiry and working with yourselves, very much at the centre of shaping uh, what was happening. So uh, we're listening to what you're saying, uh, the issues that you're going to bring all of you collectively today. And I'm sure as a committee, we will do whatever we can, Jerry, going forward, because you should never have had to even present uh, to us today in the way that you've had to. And I do appreciate uh, the work that yourself and others have done throughout this awful journey for you. Thanks so much, Martina. Look, I mean, the fact that we've worked with you for many, many years, and I know how passionate you are, Think of us as survivors and victims. What's going through us? You know, it's palpable in terms of, you know, it's hard not to get emotional at times. Seeing the people on the ground and what what they're going through. I mean, you know, John, Margaret, myself, and Sarah and others, we're all survivors here. But the fact that we're we're here, it it means that as far as we're concerned, we'll fight this to the end. If it takes me to my grave, I'll do it. But we're not prepared to give up. And all I want to do is, Martina, thank you. No, you're an inspiration, Jerry. So thank you. Martina, yeah, thanks for that. I'm going to move on. We have another couple of speakers here, Jerry, and then we've got to move on to John's presentation as well. So, um, Trevor, do you want to come up into the spotlight and maybe give a question or two? Yeah, yes, please, uh, Chair. Thanks, and hello again, Jerry. Hello, Trevor. Uh, I completely agree with what you've been saying today, and I also agree with Martina's reaction to you. This is not easy. It's not easy for you to talk about. And uh, I took a few notes there just when you were giving your presentation. Um, 
the, the 21 days uh, appeal process just does seem unnaturally short, you know, I wonder why on earth that is. The level of the awards so far, but really the, 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 the thing is, it just seems to be totally too legalistic, this whole process. And that stands out in comparison with the other schemes around the world, which are not so legalistic. So the question I want to ask you, well, you also mentioned communication and the helpline, the absence of a helpline. But to, to, to what extent do survivors so far use a solicitor to make these presentations for them? Okay, in terms of, well, a lot of people reluctantly use the solicitor because it's more of an official approach, legal approach, whether they were speaking to somebody from a social welfare background or even a counsellor, it probably mm -hmm. would be more accessible for them to be able to unload their story in some form. Uh, because of this official legalistic approach, uh, survivors find that very traumatic and not everyone will be able to articulate their story or, or even remember some of those stories, Trevor. I, I just feel that there was no necessity, in my opinion, to, to the redress board to use all strands of the legal process. Because when you look, you engage with a solicitor, you engage with uh, remotely a panel all, and still a judicial member on it. The judge is judicial, uh, the appeal judge is judicial. I mean, it just smacks of, it's, it's a, like an intimidation type of thing because it's a, mm -hmm. it's a legal structure other than you're not in the courtroom, but you may as well be because you've been cross-examined uh, going through a very holistic process. And in terms of survivors able to put their story out there, Trevor, I have to be honest with you, it is very, very difficult. And one thing we learned from the redress board, and it's, I find it very harsh, the more material you put on your submission, the likelihood that your redress would be favourable. Now, I find that very disconcerting that if you went through those institutions which were systematic abuse took place and the report was damaging on those institutions, that should be suffice in itself because we were living in an environment over many decades, all those children, that it's hard not to think that they would be impacted even in their adulthood. And then to go through an application process with a solicitor, I find it very uncomfortable. Yeah, you're, you're almost making my point for me, Jerry. Um, because the system is legalistic, it's so legalistic, I would have thought you had little choice at times, but to employ a solicitor to make your case for you, because you say it's difficult for survivors to make their own presentation and to stand up to a legal process, whereas a solicitor would be well used to it. But what that indicates to me again is that the, the fault isn't, the fault is it's just too legalistic. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be put under almost courtroom pressure to, to, to make your case. Yeah. And uh, if we take some from this, it must be that we try and, try and persuade the powers that be to reduce the legalistic aspect of all this, because that's what's causing the problem, I think. But look, thank you very much for your, your views. Okay, Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. Can I ask for Pat then, Pat Sheehan, to come up into the spotlight for a question, Pat? Thanks, Chair, uh, and thanks very much for coming along, Jerry. Uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure it's not easy for you. You just you just mentioned when you were speaking there about the uh, an option for an oral submission. Could you explain a wee bit more about that for us? Thanks. Oh, okay, Pat. Well, I think survivors first of all should have a choice, and at this moment in time, we don't have a choice. 
that we have to go through. So that's a, the application has to be filled in, and then that goes into to the redress board, who then make a, an evaluation, and that's been okay. But I think, Pat, you know, if we were in the room, same the committee and I, you in the same room, we can see the whites of people's eyes. There's no human element in the present process at the moment where there's very little of any oral hearings have been heard. I think it's only two out of over 500. And that has to be under special circumstances. What's so special that if you're a survivor and a victim, that's all you need. You don't need special circumstances. And this is what the, the, they're using. Now, you could say, okay, it's not fit for everybody. That's grand. But to have that option, if I was personally speaking, Pat, if I wanted to go, I would want to do an oral hearing. I'm able to do it. I'm strong enough. I'm a fighter. Others are not. But just to have that option, because I think the three people in that room would see the hurt, the damage, the impact. You can't see that in paper. And that's basically the bottom line. Yeah, no, and I, uh, I'm absolutely at one with you on that issue, Jerry, that, you know, when we have a process like this where everything is on forms and, you know, supply this piece of information, supply that piece of information, and, and people go through it on that basis, they don't hear the human side yet. They don't hear the emotion that the person has expressed and so on. So I'm absolutely in agreement with you on that. And I suppose um, just you you were talking to Trevor there about, or Trevor was asking you about people using solicitors and so on. Now the board are, are telling the committee that up to 35% of the applications are, are don't contain the necessary information. Um, I mean, sometimes it's I, I can understand it's difficult to get pieces of information and so on. But, but can you explain why that that's such a high number? I, I mean, it's not really your position to explain it, but I'm just asking you from your side why well, you think it may be that way. Well, I have a wee bit understanding of that, but um, and I no doubt uh, John and Morgan. So we'll go back. Part of the problem is is records, okay? And a lot of these institutions, which go back many, many years, you're going back to 1922, records were very scarce, if any at all. So therefore, if something happened to a survivor and it wasn't recorded, you know, or it was recorded and they can't find the documentation, it, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily say that ch that child suffered or didn't suffer. Um, I know personally in, in relation to um, the institutions that I was in, there was records destroyed um, believe it or not, Pat, in West Belfast way back in the early 70s. Yeah. Um, it was beside the, the Falls Library. And a lot of documentation was came from the two institutions that I'm referring to, which is Nazareth and Rabban. Um, a lot of records were destroyed. And when survivors are coming forward with material or information and they don't have it on record, I think that's been subjected by the panels the, the, our issue is, Pat, in all honesty, when there's insufficient uh, records or whatever material, it can only be simple things. ID, name and address, bank details, your date of birth, passport, ID, all that sort of yeah. essential things. Now, that's part of the, of the process. But in terms of, of the other records, Pat, in terms of the looking for material, be it medical reports, psychiatrist reports, 
or just something that's been documented. Like I have a number of documents, thankfully I, I've hold on to, but unfortunately a lot of our lads and girls were not in a position to do that because of the, of the impact of their institutional days is still being carried forward. Yeah. And unfortunately that to look for more records or material, I think the process could have been a lot more mindful of the survivor. What age that survivor is, you know, most of us are, are pensioners. Yeah. And the likelihood of keeping records is nearly no. No, and I can understand. I wouldn't like somebody to come to me looking for records from 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, because I just wouldn't have them and wouldn't be able to get my hands on them. So I can understand the position you're in. But anyway, once again, Jerry, thanks for coming along. It's good to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. I'm just going to double check with George Robinson if he's any questions that he'd like to ask for you, Jerry. So check with George there. <clears throat> thanks, Chair. And uh, just to you, Jerry, I'm very, very d disappointed that he's having to go through, he and the rest of it, the survivors having to go through all this trauma and, and red tape as well. And just from my own point of view, mo most of the questions have been asked that I would have been asking, Jerry. Yep. Um, but I commit that I will give him my 100% support and everything that the committee uh, decides to do in, in their case to, to try and rectify as, as much of the case as, as possible you know, with my full support. Thanks, Chair. And all the best to Jerry as well. Oh, okay, George, George, just on that, George, um, I appreciate what you're saying in terms of the committee will obviously take this on the review and see how best we can move this forward. Um, there's a collective responsibility on, on all of us, but mainly the main players up on the hill uh, to ensure that we have a process centered on survivors. And I, I don't think that's too much to ask for. And if, if it means the review means that has to be changes, I don't know whether that's legislative or whether it can be uh, administered level, I, I just don't know. But I think the point is, it needs to be improved. Thanks, yeah. George. Yeah. Okay. okay, right, Jerry. Thank you, George and Jerry. Thank you very much for, for, for that. What we'll do at this stage, we'll just maybe um, we'll, we'll drop yourself into the audience and bring John McCourt yep. in and listen to, to John and ask some questions. And then we'll bring you back in again then just for a summary at the end. So. Uh, John, you're very welcome. It's good to see you again. Um, we appreciate your, your time here today. Uh, we are, you know, obviously collectively not happy that we're having to have the conversation with you on the basis that it means that there is uh, problems and issues in the system and that's not where we want to be. But we really appreciate you and Jerry, uh, you know, taking the time to come and give us that information. And I know that others have given us some written submissions as well. So, John, can we pass to yourself to give us a, a reflection on, on your experiences of the redress board? And then maybe we can get some short questions afterwards, if that's OK. Yeah, great. Thanks very much, Colin. And uh, first of all, I know it's been some time from I've met with the committee or any of us have met with the committee. So, uh, Welcome to the new members of the committee and hello again to people that were there previously. Um, as, as Jerry said, you know, we didn't realize that 12 years ago when we first went, well, 11 years ago when we first went up the hill to, to, to Stormont, that it would take this length, yet, this length of time getting here, you know. And we certainly didn't envisage after the release of the report um, that we would be still uh, in discussions around how a redress process should roll out 
uh, with victims and survivors at the centre of that process. Um, I appreciate the I appreciate the fact that we have the time to be able to do some of that now, and hopefully, you know, that what we do share with you is something that's going to be taken back and taken on board by all of those who have a role in ensuring that that, that a redress process is delivered and the interests of victims and survivors of historical institutional abuse. Um, I want to start off first of all. You know, I I know sometimes it's it's very easy to be negative around a lot of stuff particularly when we're talking to government, we're talking to, to agencies and stuff like that. But I do know um, from the people that have come back to me locally that a lot of people are actually quite content with where they're at. Um, you know, people who, who've had settlements or have had uh, have had offers from, from the redress board. That's not saying everybody is content or everybody is happy. But what I will say is that, is that there are that, that are people who come back to me, quite a few of them, the best I could put would be, are content with where they are by comparison to where they were five years ago, ten years ago, or the day they left the children's home thinking nobody's ever going to believe that. I just want to go back a second to the report. And when that report came out, there it was in black and white in ten volumes. I have it sitting behind me on a shelf here. And that showed anybody who was interested in what happened in these institutions, what actually did go wrong, what the failings were, and included in the recommendations some of the proposed remedies that would help it would help victims and survivors get beyond the place where they were stuck in some cases for 50, 60, 70 years. This is the one opportunity. The one opportunity for the state and the institutions to acknowledge the harm, the damage, the pain, and the trauma that was caused through that experience of what was supposed to be care and operated in the interest of the child. Um, it's been a long journey. We've lost, as Jerry had said, people along the way. And that's the unfortunate thing about it is that there were people who put their hope in actually having at least the government, if not at the same time the institutions, acknowledge what had gone wrong. Because for most of them and for most of us, this was never about money. This was about this was about the right thing. This was about putting your hand up. This was about an acceptance of responsibility. And every action that we've taken since the release of that report is about pushing government and institutions to the point of acceptance that things went wrong that needed to be put right. And how do we put it right? We end up two years, oh well, a year and a half after the opening of the redress board, still discussing how we how we get that to function better, so that the voices of victims and survivors can be heard. And the difficulty again is that for a lot of the a lot of the victims and survivors who are now elderly, who whose literacy skills may not take them to the place where they need to be, who are shy about even talking to their own families, let alone walking into a solicitor's office to make a statement, you know, of 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 a year, five years, ten years, in some cases fifteen years. 16 years of experience of brutality and trauma while in the care of a state or an institution. 
And how do we get people to a point where they can be comfortable doing that? The written form, I know it was amended at, at a point where there were four basic guidelines on the on the application form that actually listed where you are a victim of um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. Um, I, 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 at this point, I, I haven't the only one written down in front of me. Um, and that's on the form, which does make it a bit easier for people if it was just a matter of ticking that box. But after the box has been ticked that says I was a, I, you know, I was a, I, I was a victim of, of physical abuse, then having to relive that as you're probably writing it yourself in the first place, or having somebody help you read it before you can take it to first because nobody wants to walk in there with a blank sheet. They want to, you know, I've, I've said to people, you know. Try and get your your mind into a place where you can prepare for the tough conversation you're going to have. Even that conversation on its own is too hard for some of the for some of the victims and survivors to have. So we need to find a way that allows them the space, allows them the time. Um, you know, when we said five years from the from the release of the report. On, or from the opening of the redress board until the close of it, the difficulty is that you know we're, if we're talking about oral hearings for everybody, we're certainly not going to do that in five years. It's going to take a longer time. You know the legislation is, is fixed at five years. Um, the applications have to be in within five years, but that doesn't mean that, you know that people have to get everything out there now. I would rather people have the opportunity of going sitting down. And there is a value in looking into the whites of somebody's eyes when you're trying to express what pain is, what trauma is, what suffering is, what hope is. And believe it or not, the release of the report actually gave so many people hope. And now we find that this process is going on, you know, that, that, that it's taken longer than they thought it would. It doesn't meet the need that they thought it would, um, you know, and that's one of the difficulties with it. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the form itself um, is long. It's, it's lengthy by its nature because of the, the administrative form or the administrative uh, exercise that the redress board are on. It needed to be long because they want to get as much detail as possible. The option of an oral hearing would actually be shorter. Um, and I think it should be an option rather than something, as Jerry has highlighted already, that would be called in an exceptional circumstance. Um, the, uh, again, you know, I, I, I've had good stories, you know, I've had positive stories come back from people who've made applications. I've also had some negative stories. And, uh, you know, I mean, particularly around the process itself, you know, going to the solicitor, making the statement, um, getting it on paper, so reading it through, and I understand this, you know, a solicitor hands you back five, six, seven pages. Here's your statement to the to the redress board. And in a lot of cases, people don't want to read that line for line. I do. I want to see where the full stops and the commas are in it. But people are just going to trust what's there. They're going to sign it off. They're going to put it on. And when they're walking down the stairs, as happens to most of us, when you're walking down the stairs from the solicitor's office or walking out the door, you scratch your head and you say, I wish I had told him because something had just come back. And I don't think enough cognizance is taken 
of that of, of that tra trauma memory recall. That one incident will remind you of another incident. And what you know, what looks to be happening, as much as the legislation has space for supplementary evidence, it doesn't appear that the supplementary evidence is given equal weight with the initial statement. In fact, there have been a couple of occasions where the supplementary evidence has been used to question to devalue or discredit the original statements, even statements that were made at the HIA inquiry, because that doesn't match up to what you said four years ago when you were in Banbridge. That's what's going to happen with traumatic memory. It's not going to flow um, in the way water flows down, <laughs> the way a river flows. It doesn't go in a straight line. It's not going to work like that. This is going to be something that's going to come back in bits and pieces, and that should be given more account and in fact, I would say the supplementary evidence sometimes is the key to the trauma that people have suffered. The difficulty again, you know, I mean, I, I, one of the issues is the whole legal process. Yeah, the fact that it is a legal process, I'm, you know, um, but again, my feeling is that the greater involvement of the non-judicial members and the hearings process or the, in, in, in the determination process should actually take greater account of the incidents and the trauma rather than the legal perspective that maybe a judicial member is more skilled at looking at. You know, we're talking about people here. We're not talking about books. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about legal precedent. We're certainly not talking about um, a courtroom scenario where everything you say has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. That was never something that we would have signed up to. And I think, again, for some of the people that I have spoken to, that they almost feel they have to prove and continue to prove that what happened happened, even though there are no records at all. And, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't really want to do this, but one case where an allegation was made against an institution, and from the, from the, from the board itself, the applicant gets board back, the institution have said something completely different happened there. I mean, if that's not adversarial, I don't know what is. I mean, what we're trying to do here is, is find a way of, of closing a really damaging and hurtful and traumatic part on somebody's past. And that can't happen if almost what you put into it, what you put into trying to resolve this, is used as a weapon to beat you over the head with. And I, I will say that not just locally, but some of the other people I've spoken to feel that this the process for them individually, not for everybody, but for them individually, feels like they were being traumatized all over again. Okay. John, thank you very much for, for that presentation, for giving us that information. It it's, um, really is helping us to get a full understanding of what people are, are facing and, and what the processes are. 
that they are having to go through. If you're happy enough, if we could just ask a few questions, just just to get some more clarity and more understanding. Um, I suppose something maybe that I would think of myself is is just asking. I mean, do do you feel that that this judicial process is the best way to deal with people that have suffered such a major trauma? That 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 it is um, invoking those um, feelings and thoughts that they had for many years ago. Is this type of process the best way to achieve what we need to achieve here? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I believe there has to be some legal oversight on this. But I actually don't believe that the judicial process is the right one. You know, the... To understand, um, you know, abuse and all, everything that goes with it. Um, even from a, even from a written application, we'll be able to see things in there that maybe a legal mind won't look at. And I, for me, that's part of the difficulty. You know, look, it's, it's a legal process. It's set out in legislation. The guidelines are there. The problem most of of, of, of most victims and survivors won't even have read the guidelines. It's beyond the capacity to take in what's in there. And they do depend on a solicitor. And what we do have to bear in mind is particularly, you know, from, from February last year, when things started closing down, that solicitors weren't available. You know, that that the process opened on the, on the 31st of March last year, when solicitors' offices were closed, has been, will be closed. Uh, from that point, probably for four or five months. Yeah. You could talk to a solicitor on the phone, but it's not the same as being in a room. You know, the solicitors that I've spoken to around this have said they will make, uh, if it makes a victim or survivor feel more comfortable, a female member of their staff or, or, or a female partner or a male partner um, available to talk to one person and take as much time as they need. But with COVID, even that restriction to being in a room for 20 minutes, you can't do it. Can't expect people to come back 20 minutes at a time yeah. over, you know, of, of two months so that they can complete the statement. You know, honestly, people want to get in, they want to get it over, they want to get it done. And if it means leaving stuff out, they're going to leave it out. But again, when it comes to the, the supplementary information, that needs to be given equal weight with the initial statements, you know. And in terms of COVID, just the impact, do you think that if COVID hadn't have been there, that the process would have been okay? Or do you think that, that COVID doesn't just mask problems, that there are fundamental flaws or problems with the system that even if, if COVID hadn't have been there, we would have went through the process and people still would have been facing similar issues? Yeah, I, I think it added to the difficulty to a lot of people about access. You know, I mean, the the, 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 the day that the form, that the redress application forms came out, I sat in the house, I printed off 140 copies of it because I knew that I knew that most of our people wouldn't have access to a computer, you know, wouldn't be able to, to, to get hands on this and got them delivered through a community hub right across, you know, right down to Donegal. Um, you know, and put quite a few of them in the post as well. So, you know, again, it was about access to the, initially to the material, to the application form, to the, uh, to the, to the guidance, to the rules, to what was required. And at the end of all of that, you know, whether people decided to fill in an application form themselves 
or go to a sponsor, they needed a, a solicitor to sign off their ID anyway, so that their application could go forward. And I mean, those are, that's for the living. I mean, I, I've actually got an experience of, 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 you know, of the legal process when you're talking about a child of someone who was in an institution who would have been entitled to redress, who's now making an application on behalf of a deceased parent. You know, and considering the fact, again, an additional problem is that most parents will not have told their children the experience that they lived through. So where does the evidence come from? Other people who were in the institution. You have to count on the institution saying, these are the dates you were there, this is the date you left. You know, hospital records that will actually say, yes, he attended with a broken bone or had five stitches in his head because of because of falling downstairs, as they would put it, you know. Um, it, all of that stuff has to come back and then I think that makes it, again, what, you know, while it's almost a burden of proof thing again. You know, more difficult, I think, for for the for for you know for the children of deceased parents to try and do this so that they at some point can have an acknowledgement for their you know for, for for their parents you know. Okay, John. John, thank you for for answering those questions. It's always appreciated. I, I'm going to open up to Martina Anderson now, who has wants to come on and ask some questions. So Martina, we'll pass over to yourself. Uh, thank you, Colin, and thank you, John. And I was listening to you, John, I was reflecting on, it was over 13 years ago when you walked into my office and three hours later, I was absolutely in shock listening to your testimony. And that's what got me involved with yourselves and others because uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't been aware of all that unfortunately happened to yourself and others at that time. And it hurts me to listen to you today around this uh, redress process and experience that yourself and Jerry has recounted so far and I'm sure we'll hear from from Margaret as well. Can I ask you, you know, when the when the initial legislation was drafted and there was there was some unease um, at a solely judicial panel and yourselves have talked a lot about that today. And as a result of a consultation process, uh, redress board panels were comprised of one judicial member and then others from social science and you know non-judicial fields, just to broaden out the understanding and the impact of childhood trauma. So listening to you today and listening to Jerry, I mean, I'm questioning, does the format meet the needs of the um, applicants to the redress board? Because it appeared to me that it doesn't. But I, I would just like to hear more from yourself, John, about that. Yeah, well, uh, again, it was something when we looked at it, you know, and I know this was, I suppose by, by legislative standards, the redress board was set up, the legislative, yeah, the, the decision on how the redress board would be formed was a pretty. It seemed to also be a pretty quick decision. Um, when the when the uh, consultation came out, I'm looking at this thing about a judicial panel. Just no way, you know. I mean, for a lot of our people, their time in an institution would have been as a result of a judicial or a legal decision. So most of our people would not have a faith in that system in the first place. The last they wanted 
was to have the decision on redress on the acknowledgement of their pain and their trauma made by the by by part of the institution that was responsible for putting them there in the first place. So you know, I mean, the, the fact that it did, did that that the the um, makeup of the panels um, now included people with expertise in, in child trauma or whatever, you know, was something that that we were glad to see. Again, the difficulty is there's a legal sort of thing that they call they call it the equality of arms. And if you're on one side and I'm on the other and I get a document, the equality of arms would state that I have to let you see what that document does. In other words, you can see exactly what I'm working with. The way we are at the moment, and from the solicitors that I've spoken to, the only time they ever get sight of what an institution would say about an applicant is at the appeals process. Before that, the redress board hold all the cards. The solicitor never gets the file that the redress board are making the decision, that are, are basing their decision on. They don't see what social services said. They don't see what the institution said. Yeah, and the only thing they have to go on is the statement made by, in a lot of cases, um, a vulnerable and traumatized adult talking about something that happened at the church. You know, a solicitor hasn't got anything to fight back with until the until he actually sees the determination, and that determination will solely be based on the written application that he or a uh, an applicant has made themselves. Um, I don't know if there, I mean there should be a way around that. You know, I, I mean there's, there's actually a statement here that I, it talks about in the interest of justice. In the interest of justice. A solicitor should see on behalf of a client everything that the redress board has. And and the view of some can be used against them to discredit the evidence that they've given. So, you know, I mean that's that's where I would be with that. And again, you know, Examples, you know, I mean, there are there are a few examples of this, and you know, without sort of giving too much away, without putting somebody down on, you know, a, a, a case where a, a man had spent, well, a man at this point had spent uh, six years in various institutions, without doubt, you know, in each of these institutions, as he said, he was bullied, he was beaten, all of that stuff. As a result of that, his own doctor prescribed the fact that this man suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. And the decision is made that after spending six years in, in, in various institutions, the post-traumatic stress disorder has nothing to do with that time. But it had to do with three days that he spent in custody. Who makes that decision? You know, where is the weight of the child trauma expert on the panel when that decision not just is made but is actually written down? To be honest, if I made that decision, I think I'd be very hesitant to write it down. I would just say I'm disregarding it. I'm not going to stay away and disregarding it. 
But again, what it does is, is that devalues the effort of the applicant trying to recall what you know, what for them were life changing moments and a system whose purpose was to, to care for them. So yeah, I mean, for, yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the greater role and the greater weight um, to oversee the legislative application of the redress process, you need to have a judicial member or someone with that legal expertise. But the decisions themselves, based on trauma, based on based on the experience of children describing what happened to them, I think are best left the people who are trained experts in that field. And that's not saying that some of the legal members won't have expertise in it or have an understanding of it, but we're talking about people who are trained to deal with us. And again, that can best be done with somebody sitting in a room across the table or on a chair looking across at the people who are, to all intents and purposes, judging. And that's what it feels like for a lot of them, judging the honesty of their trauma recall. Okay, John, um, I mean, the, I certainly think that all of us will be very impacted on what you've just said there and the need for a trauma-centered approach so that, that that's what's taken forward and we'll have other opportunities to, to pursue that. Can I ask you just one other question in relation to, because there's been issues raised of the territorial limitation um, of the legislation where applicants living outside of this jurisdiction, particularly those on social security and housing benefits in England, would have the advantage of a benefit disregard. Now, we were dealing with that at one of the other meetings, but and we understand so that the Department of Works and Pension um, has, has also said it's, it's looking into that, but it has been raised on a number of occasions in a number of meetings. So in your view, um, has this issue, uh, has it got the potential of being resolved? Um, are you confident it will be resolved or do you still have concerns about it? First of all, I'm very, very glad that I, uh, that I heard Stephen Orm's presentation because he did, go into some, he did go into some detail on where this stands. Um, mm -hmm. I also find it interesting that, you know, again, without politicizing this, that the victims, uh, victims' pensions legislation had, was not and territorially um, limited, you know, and, and uh, you know, again, there, yeah, there would be the question around why did that happen and why did this not happen in our case, you know, but, you know, the, I mean, that's where it's at, but um, I've been in touch with the Secretary of State, I've been in touch with the Northern Ireland Office, I've been in touch with, with, uh, with the Executive Office on this for the last year, over a year, and I know it's been mentioned frequently at the, at the committee, at the committee meeting, and uh, in fact, just last week or the week before last, um, I was to go to a meeting and I couldn't make it, but I, I did get notes from it. And I think this is something on its way to being resolved right now, which will be a great relief mm -hmm. for, for the older and more vulnerable people who are living, as we say, across the water or outside of this jurisdiction. Um, and from this is actually from um, the executive office. They confirmed that agreement has been reached in principle with the relevant secretaries of state that once 
uh, hits MT, in other words, the Treasury's agreement is received, awards and GP will be disregarded. In the meantime, any relevant cases were being parked by the Department of Works and Pensions and no deductions would be made. And local councils will take their lead from DWP on this. And uh, TEO were working at a business case with DWP, DWP to progress it. Um, you know, that looks like we're, we're there and we're almost there. Ending up as legislation or ending up as a um, as an administrative process that resolves this will be very difficult for victims and survivors living in England, you know, who who you know who would have got awards or who will get awards, because they're not all going to go on the DWP website. Uh, and what I am suggesting is that when this decision is made, that uh, as they said here, a form of words. Uh, will be put in a letter. And what I would ask, and the committee can, can push this, is that that letter, that that form of word saying this is exempt, if we just use that as a phrase of convenience, this is exempt, go to the redress board who then write to all of those who will already have received payments saying that uh, when DWP and when your local council come knocking on the door saying give us your money, just they can show them this letter and say, look, here's a number you have to contact. I don't have to do anything. You contact, make it their responsibility. You know, one of the issues again on this, which sort of had been overlooked, uh, and I know Stephen had, I think Stephen had talked about it, but I know it had been discussed at a previous committee meeting, was that if somebody had previously had an award through the criminal injury process um, in a case against an institution, that award is deducted from the award that the redress board would make. In other words, you can't get two bites of the cherry, uh, and that's understandable. But the difficulty now is that the award that would have been given through the courts or whatever process it was, that's criminal injuries award or compensation it was given, um, will may already in some cases have impacted on people's benefits. And their, and their house and all the rest of it. And because this is the fruit of the same tree, I actually think that DWP should also reconsider and revisit awards that they have taken into account of people who, who, you know, who, who would have been paid by the redress board because that award is automatically deducted from whatever um, award the redress board would make. Just for example, if you got twenty, if you got ten thousand pounds in a criminal injuries case against um, one of the institutions five years ago, and the redress board decides to award you ten thousand or twenty thousand pounds, the ten thousand pounds will be deducted. As far as they're concerned, your total award is twenty thousand pounds, but you haven't got the twenty thousand pounds because you already got the ten. So again, you know, when, 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 when whatever form of words is being used in this, I would like to think that people wouldn't be penalised because of previous settlements, which now become part of, the, of their redress settlement because it's deducted from the redress settlement. Okay, I issue that this, this committee can pursue um, perhaps after today. Thanks, John. Thank you for all that. Thank you, Martina. That's appreciated. Look, nobody's fault or nobody's issue, but we're we're about 20, 10, 15 minutes over time here, and we've still another question to go. So if we could bring Trevor up, please, and 
um, and get the, the question there. Trevor, over to yourself. Yeah, thank, thank you, Chair. And uh, John, thank you very much for your presentation again. I, I admire the way you can so, so eloquently represent the views of the people that you represent. Uh, I have only one question for you because we've covered so much already here. Um, the, the appeal process, the appeal limit of 21 days, and I know it's early days yet, but to what extent uh, have, have people actually suffered by that time limit so far? Um, yes, I, I, I've had discussions with I've had discussions with applicants, and I've also had discussions with a couple of solicitors around us who feel that the 21 days is too short a time. You know, three months might be a bit. You know, yeah, I would say three months would be better than than than, than 28 days. And the difficulty again is, and we have to take into consideration the time we are in right now. You know that what's COVID the way it is, communication yep. is going to be as prompt as it used to be. Getting stuff back and forward, plus the fact that if we're dealing with older, more vulnerable, and less literate people, it's going to take a bit of time for the for them to understand what the determination is actually saying. And you know, when they'll understand what the award is, but they won't understand. Maybe have difficulty understanding the determination. But that's going to need more time. And I think you know, although you can't introduce new evidence at an appeal. I think there should be a reconsideration phase, um, not necessarily a full-blown appeal, um, that would accept the fact that maybe in the interpretation of, a, of, of, of the evidence of an applicant, um, the committee may have seen something a different way, and somebody having the right you know, to correct that. Um, but I, I mean, I think 21 days is too short. I mean, right now we haven't got, to, I mean, I remember the time when you could have had a post you have a letter in the morning, you could have sent a reply, and you get a response back that afternoon. We don't have two posts anymore. Second class mail in this city goes to Belfast before it arrives back again. So if that's not going to happen with solicitors, you've lost a week in the first written communication. Yes, plus plus the fact that I'm um, looking at the, the grounds for appeal here, and it does say the notice of appeal must set out in writing the grounds of, of the appeal. And that, that takes consideration by a solicitor, by the applicant, takes the time involved in the postage, at the, all the problems arising from COVID and communication at the moment. It's just so obviously too short. I mean, if, if, I could, if I could do nothing else today, if I had the, uh, the option to change that to three months, uh, stroke of a pen, get it done. Because, And also, you're quite right when you say that things can come out in the, in the course of discussion, which the applicant may have thought, he should have mentioned, uh, or it could be items where he, he, he's heard something and he disagrees with, obviously, and that, that could be ground for an appeal, but it, it takes time for a solicitor to sort those things out. And solicitors with the best will in the world are not, they're, they're deliberate in what they do, and they're not quick and rightly, so so that all that does not add up at all. But thank you very much for coming before us again. Okay, uh, thanks very much. I just want to check with um, George Robinson if he has any questions there. George, have you anything to, you'd like to check out? No, I'm, I'm fine, Chair, and uh, I, as I was saying to Jerry, I support them wholeheartedly in everything that they're, they're doing and anything that we can do on their behalf, I'm fully supportive. Excellent. 
Thank, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, and I know that we have John back up. Um, sorry, uh, if we had Jerry back up into the uh, spotlight, um, just if there were any other questions that maybe anybody or clarification that anybody wanted, if they wanted to indicate. But I think the nature of how we have conducted today, we'll probably find that all uh, matters have been discussed. Um, I, I did want to maybe just to reference that we had two groups that weren't able to join us today. Um, there was the Survivors Together, uh, and Cyril from Survivors Together provided us last week with a very detailed paper, uh, which took us through the many issues that are there and many of the issues that you have also referenced, uh, John and Jerry. And likewise, um, we had information through from the Salvia Group from Margaret. Uh, also, which was received and um, that the, the committee has been able to give consideration to. Uh, with nobody uh, indicating then for any follow-ups at this stage, John and Jerry, can I thank you most sincerely for coming along today and providing uh, us with that very detailed uh, information on behalf of your groups, uh, behalf of yourselves. Uh, we know that this isn't the easiest subject to talk about and we really appreciate whenever you do come to us and give us the update. So can I thank you both very much and uh, that we will we will keep in in contact. Jerry, are you, you looking? Yeah. To, yeah. Just one thing uh, I had to, I, I have to say is I'm no, no doubt you all will fall behind us. I think it's important for the committee to um, support the commissioner going forward for the work that she's done thus far, and she she obviously agrees with not, a lot of the issues that we have raised, which are fundamental, and uh, that there's a serious flaws. And all I'm asking for the committee to fall full behind Fiona in terms of what she has disclosed and has undertaken on behalf of survivors, because she's not just representing the group, she's the voice for all survivors. And I think that's very important to put on the, on the floor. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, absolutely. A very eloquent voice. And we, we've she's been to the committee um, twice and provided us with really uh, solid information. And I and, and, and know that, that certainly, uh, and I'm sure other members will agree that whenever we've um, asked questions, we've got excellent answers. And we know that she has gone off uh, to find out any information that wasn't known and has come back to us with that information. So um, certainly I have great faith in the work that she's doing. And, and, and it's good to get the feedback from the sector uh, from yourselves as well. So, but look, John, Jerry, thank you very much indeed. We'll let you go at this stage um, and we will move on. I was going to suggest a break, but I think because we're running late and we do have other uh, people on in the audience at this stage to present, that we maybe just move straight into that. Um, so, members, we will move to item seven of the committee uh, papers today, which is the Historical Institutional Abuse Redress Board and Oral Evidence Session. Members, that is available for you on pages 70 to 103 of the meeting pack. Um, if at this stage we could bring the representatives from the uh, Redress Board up into the uh, spotlight, and I think we have uh, Three and one, uh, which is handy, and then one uh, that's not with the three. So just to introduce, uh, we were, are welcoming Mr. Justice Ian Huddleston, who is the president of the Historical Institutional Address Board. Um, it might be old-fashioned, but maybe could could you maybe just give us a wave just to see which that, that's yourself in the centre. Then we have Mr. Jim Kofi, who is the secretary, and... 
That's yourself, Jim. Great. Okay. And then we have Patrick Butler, who I'm guessing is yep, over on the left. And then we also have on the screen is Beverly Clark, who's a non-judicial panel member. So um, you're all very welcome to uh, the committee today. Thank you very much for joining us for this. Uh, what we'll do is, as with everything else, we will pass over to yourselves maybe to give us um, a short presentation, and then at the end of it, we can move into uh, a more informal question and answer session. So, I guess, am I passing to yourself, Ian? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, well, thank you, Chair, and thank you, members of the committee. Um, you obviously have our uh, submission, so I'm, I'm hopefully going to simply highlight some of those issues. But I would like to say I welcome the opportunity to, to explain the operation of the Redress Board today and in particular to address some of the committee's uh, uh, recent criticisms and observations which have been made. Some of those, may I say, I perfectly well understand um, and who could not be affected by what we have heard this afternoon. Uh, but others, I have to say, are the outworkings of the legislation in which we have had absolutely no hand whatsoever and have to operate within. That's a simple fact. Um, I would like to emphasise that our understanding is that the legislation was brought forward after a period of consultation, uh, both with politicians and indeed with the victims and survivor groups. Uh, to that extent, we do believe that they were part of that co-design process. I can't comment on that because I wasn't part of it, but that certainly is, is our understanding. Uh, in terms of this afternoon, I want to make a relatively short statement to uh, the committee on our statutory rule. Uh, as I say, at least to put into some context some of the criticisms that have been raised. Uh, I will try to explain to the best I can how why some things are the way they are. And when we come to the question and answer phase, uh, the team are in attendance to here today to help answer any questions which either you or the committee may have. And Chair, can I say, I acknowledge from the very outset that we are not perfect. I don't think anyone is. I accept that we can improve, but I would say that improvement has to be on an informed basis. And as things stand, the legislative basis that we have has got to be acknowledged. Um, I'm accompanied. Uh, Beverly Clark is, is with us today as a non-judicial member. I'm very conscious of some of the discussions that have been had around the decision-making process. And I, I will ask Beverly later on just to explain to the committee exactly how that process operates in practice. Paddy Butler is here. He is the senior legal advisor to the board, but before that was also legal advisor to the Heart Inquiry, so was infinitely familiar with the history of all of this. And Jim uh, is obviously here as the person who leads the board's administrative functions and provides the board with performance information. As I've said, we have submitted a detailed written submission, which is before you. In that, we have tried to set out um, the procedures of the board and the detail of the legislative framework in which we operate. Some of the schematics which are attached at the annex um, uh, give you a better feel, I think, for the process that we adopt. And I, I'm not going to rehearse all of that content this afternoon, but I do think it is important that we highlight some of the issues. 
Uh, one of those issues is the wide remit of the legislation, uh, which uh, now encompasses a range of institutions which extends well, well beyond the welfare institutions which we've focused on today so far. So for example, it does include mother and baby homes. Uh, it does include juveniles held in adult prisons uh, and indeed in certain hospitals. I, I frankly think that that probably wasn't in the anticipation of the Heart Inquiry uh, when the recommendations were made or certainly not to any material extent, but it does form part of the, of the legislative basis which we have to operate. Uh, to give you some background, the Redress Board was established on the 31st of March 2020. It was launched at the height of the pandemic in what were, and let's face it, remain very challenging circumstances for everyone, including applicants. Um, it was the product, as I say, we believe, of a co-design and full consultation before the legislation was brought in. I am aware from my predecessor that some thought it might have been better to postpone its operation, but that the decision was taken to proceed to try and start paying compensation to applicants as soon as possible. That decision was taken very early on in the process and the scheme was launched uh, as, soon as, as soon as was practically possible. As I've only been in post since January of this year, I feel entirely free to say that during that time of pandemic, my impression is the team has worked very hard to ensure the efficient and effective progression of applications to a panel stage so that applicants receive the compensation to which they are entitled as soon as reasonably practicable. Despite the challenges of being a newly formed body and operating in the pandemic, the Redress Board has quarter on quarter increased the number of panel decisions and sessions and its determinations. Those panel sessions are planned and organised and it's part of my function to do so in line with the cases which are actually ready to be listed. So in other words, we, we flex the available panel sessions depending on the number of completed full applications which we have to consider. To, illustrate the point, uh, I'm going to ask you to look at a, a graph and I'd ask Alice if she could bring that up now. That is to depict uh, the trajectory of panel sessions starting from uh, the beginning of the redress board last year. And the purpose of it is to show the growth in panel sessions during that period. To give you further context, there have been 60 panel sessions considering 236 cases in the first two months of this financial year, which is compared with 52 panel sessions and 196 determinations in the first six months of last financial year. So if we take that as roughly 120 uh, uh, sessions per month or decisions per month as the average, that equates with roughly 1,500 uh, per annum or over 7,000 throughout the anticipated five-year plan of the project. The second slide now, Alice. There have been more full determinations, 207 in fact, in the first two months of this financial year than there were in this first seven months of the last financial year. Four million 
has been paid to applicants in the first two months of this financial year compared with 3.7 million in the first six months of last year. And to date, approximately 19 million pounds has been distributed. I would hope that any objective analysis of the performance figures which we have provided both this afternoon and in our written submission demonstrates the increased performance quarter on quarter during what was a very difficult period. One in which other comparative bodies have experienced significant reductions or indeed a slowdown in performance. Taking all of those circumstances into account, I do believe our objective performance when compared with the first year performance of other individual redress payment schemes is satisfactory, if not indeed favourable. For ease of reference, I know they've been mentioned earlier today, but we have included the first year comparisons with other comparable schemes in our written submission. Those are appended at Annex E. Is there room to approve? Of course there is. We want to streamline things and we want to work together to improve the outcomes and the experiences of applicants. On that very point, I very much welcomed Margaret Bateson's evidence to the committee on behalf of the VSS, calling for a smoother and better client pathway. That is what we all should be aspiring to. But in my respectful view, as the president of a board that is one part of that process, I do not think that the requisite strands have been pulled together in the way that Hart or indeed the Act intended. In our own case and within our submission, we have set out the challenges which the board has to contend. But it is worth highlighting some of the main ones this afternoon. The first one has been alluded to before, and that's the question of research. The Redress Board does not expect applicants to do research into historic records of institutions. That is simply not correct. The information that we seek and it is required under the legislation is purely documentary evidence relating to their identity and the basis of their claim. The research position is that the Redress Board has assumed the responsibility of checking on institutions and deals through the Rule 7 procedure, which is highlighted in the application and indeed in our submission. One of the major challenges, however, that we face is that uh, um, we have to operate at the speed that those institutions reply. Now, we have statutory powers which help us, but uh, we still have to engage with them. And during the pandemic, that has not been an easy process. The second point I'd like to make is that there are many, many more institutions within the scope of the legislation than was initially thought. The Hart Inquiry examined 22 institutions. To date, the board has received applications uh, relating to over 100 institutions. And that does not include the applications which we anticipate from adult prisons, mother and baby homes, or indeed, in some cases, hospitals. So as I've alluded to before, I do not think that the policymakers fully considered the implication of what is an expanding list of institutions in quite the way that we are experiencing in the applications that are coming in. In fact, 
To give you an example, we have now almost 300 applications from juveniles who spent time as sentenced prisoners in adult prisons. Each application we receive, frankly, brings us new challenges and new considerations. On the question of independence, I have noted, and certainly it has been very forcefully emphasised this afternoon, uh, about the question of the independence and the judicial nature on which we operate. Can I make it very clear that this board is not part of the justice system, nor was it established as a court? It was established and operates as an independent body corporate. Yes, the Act certainly sets out the requirements for the appointment of judicial members and the appointment of professional experienced members from the fields of health and social care, which are undertaken by the executive. Those are requirements of the Act and uh, I am bound to and I cannot change. But I would like to emphasise that the current statute is something that the interim advocate, as I have said, the local parties argued for and indeed secured in the final legislation. It was in fact during that consultation a complete reversal of what was originally proposed. So the three panel system was something which came out of the consultation process. On the question of non-judicial membership, again we have heard quite a lot about that today. The portrayal that non-judicial members perform a secondary or less influential role in making panel decisions is completely misinformed. I can ensure the committee, as I did those groups that I met in March, that the specific insight and professional judgment of the non-judicial members is absolutely necessary, much valued, and in my own experience on the panels that I have uh, chaired, beyond reproach. The process is that after preparing separately through reading extensive background papers, in some cases involving not just hundreds but thousands of pages, panel members meet collectively in a virtual session, just as this committee is meeting today. Each application is considered very carefully and each panel member's views and their individual perspectives are fully taken on board. In my own experience, the non-judicial panel members bring a wealth of experience from a range of roles, including acting as advisors and facilitators to the HIA Acknowledgement Forum and the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse in England and Wales, as former childcare and protection social workers working with vulnerable children and adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, and as members of advisory and training bodies in the area of present and historic child and adult abuse. I myself have sat in a number of tribunals of fact and can assure you that the board could not have asked for better appointees, particularly at this stage of its evolution. But I thought, rather than hear me say it, that I would ask Beverly, uh, who is one of those lay members and indeed was a facilitator in the Heart Acknowledgement Forum, to provide insight into the important role which uh, they play. Equally, when we come to the question and answer session, Beverly will be available to ask any questions which uh, the committee may have about the assessment procedure or indeed the wider work of the board, as she is also a member of our management board. Uh, Beverly, could I pass over to you? Thank you very much, President, and indeed members of the committee. I'd just like to start with giving some context to my professional background. Um, 
I qualified as a social worker way back in 1993 and also as an expert witness in 2014. During that time, I've worked essentially in local authority statutory work. I've also been a ch children's guardian and also expert witness for courts. So very, very much around child abuse, child sexual abuse and neglect. And that's regarding children who have suffered within institutions and non-institution settings. I've also got a lot of experience working with adult survivors, victim survivors who've suffered childhood, childhood abuse and trauma. I was very privileged to be a member of the Acknowledgement Forum in the Heart Inquiry, and I actually was involved from the inception of the inquiry. And before we got to meet our folk coming in, our participants, we actually thought about how we'd make this whole process victim-centred so that we could hear people listening in an environment that was absolutely to be heard without prejudice. So we did that and um, I personally think the Acknowledgement Forum was a wonderful success and people got to talk about their experiences in a safe and confidential setting. I'm also a truth facilitator with the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse in England and Wales. And I've been with the inquiry for four and a half years, really since it started. And my role uh, within that, that uh, area is to meet with participants who want to share their experiences of child sexual abuse and childhood trauma, and should they wish to, to make recommendations to government to help protect children in the future. First, I'd like to say, as I said, many, many years of working with adult victim survivors, but what I really want to acknowledge as well, that every person, life events, critical life markers are unique to him or her. For each victim survivor, there's absolutely, it's a unique journey and also uh, to acknowledge the resilience and resourcefulness of victim survivors. If I may, the committee talk you through the process of being a non-judicial panel member within the Redress Board. We as non-judicial panel members, that's quite a mouthful to say, and the judge receive the papers in advance of the panel and we read through the applicant's statement of the experience and any additional uh, papers they may have. As one would expect, the panel papers, they vary in size. Some people choose to submit the uh, statement of experience, whereas other people choose to submit additional information, sometimes including the documents from the Heart Inquiry and the Acknowledgement Forum. Um, as well as the experiences that the individual identifies that they had within the institution, they also identify the impact of the abuse and neglect that they have suffered as children. I mean, this is absolutely fundamental, I think, in terms of developmental and childhood trauma and abuse to know how it affects the adult, the functionality, how it affects them. And that is very, very much absolutely in focus within the discussion and the decision making within the redress board. If I can give you one example, which is something that we hear about often, but it, it, it's, it's a very much a thing that comes through. Whenever we hear about sibling groups that have been placed in institutions, and that sibling contact has been denied or frustrated. So sometimes youngsters are in the same institution, but they're not allowed to have that, that kind of ongoing contact or it's completely no contact. What we hear from many of our adult victims survive is how that's affected them in adulthood. For many of them, particularly older siblings, there's a feeling that of immense guilt that they feel because they didn't protect the wee sister or the wee brother. For others, it's a tragic, haunting memory of their time in care together. So that's one of one of the experiences that we often hear about amongst many, many others. 
it's a very powerful example of what people are uh, have been subjected to, but also what the panel are very much alert to. During the panel, we the judges asked the non-judicial panel members to present the case. So this can include or, or informa the information that comes from the report in a summary, capturing the salient points and sometimes much, much more. There often uh, we hear from applicants who've been in more than one institution, so they may have been in several institutions. And actually some may have no complaint about a particular institution and have suffered different forms of abuse within each institution that they were in. So clearly it's, it's a very complex area. So what we do is we summarise that information and have the discussion about the incidents of abuse and neglect within a particular institution, within looking at the duration, and thereafter how that has impacted on the adult victim survivor's life. And when we talk about impacts, I think it's really, really important to know that impacts affect victim survivors in many, many ways. So for example, we could be, it could be the psychological, the physical, the, the intrafamilial, the social, the intimate, educationally. There's a multitude of outcomes that affect our victim survivors. And it's very, very much about keeping that front and centre within the panel discussion and within the panel decision making. Following the panel, when the decision is made around banding and around award, a summary of reasons is circulated. Now that is constructed, that's composed by the judge and that's circulated to non-judicial panel members. I feel that, that my role, along with my colleagues who are also non-judicial panel members, is to make sure the language that we use is trauma-informed and victim survivor-centred. Absolutely key. Uh, and so for me, of course, that document, it is a legal document, but it's not a checklist document. It's not something which is a tick, tick, tick. It's very much capturing the individual victim survivors' experiences, making sure that it's individualised, that it's meaningful, absolutely, to that, that applicant. And I, I heard, I was listening and I was saddened to hear John and Jerry, uh, how they felt. I think really important to acknowledge that. In terms of what non-judicial panel members bring to the table, well, we bring expertise around child development and social care and equality and justice. So that's very, very much an important part of that. I believe we add significant value uh, to the, the Redress Board panel. As I said earlier, we can categorise abuse and neglect and we hear about specific incidents of what a victim survivor was subjected or witness to. But we have to discuss the impact this has had because for many, they've been carrying this for years. So that, that process, for want of another term, it's informed, it's individual to the victim survivor, and it's done in a collective and collaborative way involving judicial and non-judicial panel members. I've been involved in many pa uh, panels. I've been part of the Readers' Board since it started. And I also know my colleagues share this view. I've also heard more than once that um, judges have expressed how much they value our input. And have always been, I've always, they've been very, very receptive to my personal view. I think we bring expertise to that panel. I think we, we bring a voice as well, because we are very experienced in social care. But I also want to say we're a very vocal group. We're not trunking but violets. And it's very much about, you know, 
I think the core task with social worker, apart from listening skills, is to use analytical skills and to be, be absolutely vocal, be, to have good verbal expression. And sometimes there are times when the non-judicial panel members, when we have good, healthy discussions amongst ourselves as well. My experience of the Readers' Board has been one of judicial and non-judicial panel members working together, you know, collaboratively, collaboratively and collegiately. And for me, I feel very privileged to be part of that, that board. Thank you very much for listening. And as the President said, I'll be happy to take any questions later on. Uh, thanks, Barry. Um, we've, we've obviously heard today uh, other concerns about the board adopting a very legalistic or uh, judicial-like process. Um, for my part, I, I can't pretend for one moment that the Act and the rules are, are not complex. And if I'm being brutally honest from my own part, I, I think they do contain contradictory provisions. Uh, that is a consequence of the legislative process, but, but those contradictions are definitely there. Uh, it is a statutory redress scheme. It's underpinned by that legislation. And it's the legislation which we as the board constituted under it must follow. And that is particularly as regards uh, some of the legislative formalities. So, for example, uh, we touched early on, and, and Jerry mentioned it, uh, that we have got to ensure that applicants comply with the information requirements set out in Rule 4. But as I've already said, that isn't about historic records. That's about an applicant providing their own identification evidence and the evidence that they or their legal advisors want to submit in support of their application. The board has a requirement to verify attendance at an institution. We do that under the Rule 7 procedure, as we've outlined in our submission. And uh, we exercise the powers that we have to request or compel further information to allow us to take uh, a fair and balanced determination of an application. Now, there, there are two points that I want to pick up from what we've heard this afternoon. The first, and Beverly has alluded to it, is in relation to the statement of experience. Can I be just very clear, the, the informal the better from our perspective, because it is very much a case that the, that the applicant's own words are those that are to be preferred, but we are not prescriptive. An applicant can choose to rely on his or her heart statement. They can, if they prefer, in some cases, one of the most uh, moving applications I had was actually written by the applicant's daughter. Uh, we are entirely not prescriptive as to how that evidence is put before us, providing it meets the requirements of the Act. And it was for that reason, uh, may I say, that the original statement of experience, we've heard about comparison with other schemes, we, the original statement of experience was very heavily based upon that which they operate in Australia. In fact, it was very, very similar indeed. The one that we have moved to is simply to provide people with guidance as to the statutory requirements that we need so that they put evidence, I think it was John that said earlier, in the right box. That is no more than to try and help applicants through what we acknowledge is a legalistic process. But I would emphasize that the verification information which I mentioned earlier is one which the board has taken on. It's not strictly within its legislative requirement to do so, but it does so to encourage applicants and to take the burden of finding that information out. 
The other point I would make very clear is that we have elected at a very early stage to run that process in parallel with receiving an application. There, there could be an argument for saying that when, it's only when an application is complete that we then run the process with the institutions, but we've decided to run it in parallel to try and reduce the overall time of applications. Uh, on the question of, of legal representation, which again has been uh, raised today, can I just say that 95% of applicants are legally representative? And that is exactly what Hart envisaged. He envisaged that the complexities and requirements in this process would be uh, best uh, advised by applicants going through a solicitor. The representation for that was deliberately funded through this scheme, completely outside the legal aid process, to speed that uh, and help ease any considerations of cost. It, that was provided through the consultation process, and as, I'm far, as far as I am aware, Section 28.3 of the Act was added through that consultation process to specifically give the Commissioner wide powers to create a legal panel of properly qualified solicitors who would be both experienced in this area of law and have the appropriate empathetic qualities. The Act also gives the Commissioner the flexibility to specify the terms and conditions upon which solicitors might be appointed. And as a former solicitor myself, I can say that it is entirely standard to adopt such an approach and where desired or applicable to include specific KPIs around reaction times and issues such as communication. That is quite normal practice. We acknowledge that the process of making an application for compensation can be difficult and upsetting. And it is certainly not our intention in any shape or form to re-traumatize applicants. From the outset, we have expressed its con our concern that the redress scheme was launched in the absence of established and coordinated practical and emotional support services to help victims of childhood abuse to make an application to the board. For a, for a very large part of the last year, the, they were unsupported in terms of making those applications except through their solicitors. So I very much welcome the formal appointment of the victim support service to fill that gap and the clarification that has since come about its intended role. And we do look forward to working in partnership with BSS on how we might both collectively support applicants to the board in parallel with the legal support and assistance that is available. We have referenced applicants being re-traumatized by appearing in front of a panel. Um, it was a deliberate option and decision by Hart and the legislation to try and minimize the number of, number of panel sessions so that applicants were not being re-traumatized. The, the whole scheme was set up on the basis that it would and could largely be done on the papers and would not be seen as a judicial process. It is for that reason that panels almost exclusively determine applications on the information before them and do not require applicants to appear in person other than in exceptional circumstances. If I could pick up on one of the points that was made earlier, um, the information that we look at is, is indeed shared with applicants and solicitors. If there is some information that we think needs to be placed in front of the applicant so that they can comment on it. It's not to burden, it's not to re-traumatize, it's simply so that we get 
the complete picture of the allegations that are made and the counter allegations if there are any from the institution. It is a matter of natural justice that those points do need to be put to the applicants. The other issue which we have come in for criticism for is the issue of communication. For my part I believe that refers to perceived lack of engagement with group leaders, the language which we use in our correspondence, the language which is used in our summary of reasons or the awards themselves and the board's policy of engaging with solicitors which has been described as impersonal. In the few minutes I've left I would like to set out how we can hopefully collectively address some of these observations. Firstly we have offered and have met with those groups who have availed of the invitation on a six-monthly basis. The last series of meetings were arranged for a two-day period at the end of March and before that meetings took place with my predecessor in November. Beyond that we have always understood that the role of the interim advocate and more recently the commissioner is to be the conduit between the groups and the board. It has always been guided by those offices on the need for more frequent meetings if they are required but I am more than happy to engage with the group separately to agree a timetable of direct engagement if they wish to meet more frequently than six months. I am however very conscious that there is also a constituency of victims and survivors who are not affiliated to any group and have either chosen to instruct solicitors privately or to pursue their own applications. This important cohort must be remembered as part of this dialogue. Indeed through the proposed publicity campaign we actually expect that cohort to increase substantially in number. We also recognize that charities such as the Child Migrants Trust and others provide excellent support and play an invaluable role. In short what I'm saying there is a very wide constituency group for us to consider and to serve. As I've said to date 95% of those whether they are affiliated to groups or not have chosen to instruct lawyers an approach as I say that was encouraged by heart and facilitated by the act. And if I could just add to that the reason for that is not simply the purposes of assessing what an applicant do for this scheme. It is also one has to remember the reality that those solicitors may be advising those applicants that they are better served by pursuing civil litigation in the civil courts directly against some of the institutions. So the advice which solicitors are giving is not just geared solely to this scheme but is looking at that wider question of compensation and as to whether a civil action would be more appropriate in the circumstances. And I need to make that point because it's something that is very often overlooked. In terms of the correspondence which is required to communicate our decisions I appreciate that some of that may be looked at as being legalistic or lacking in empathy and where it's not being fully explained by a solicitor. But where we are dealing with applicants in person we do try to ensure that that language is appropriate and is easily capable of being understood. 
equally very happy to work with with the groups to see if we can improve on that language uh, but i would say that we already adopt the internationally adopted lexicon of terminology when we refer to sexual abuse and in addition each of the panels have been specifically trained to be alert to that issue and the use of language in particular and to adopt trauma-informed language when they can. During my meetings with the groups in March, I listened to one group's observation that the language used in some of the summary of reasons prepared by the panel was lacking in understanding of their experience or indeed their situation. I recognised how important the panel's summary of reasons is to an applicant, not just because it sets out the amount of compensation they might have been awarded, but because it serves as an acknowledgement of their lived experience and the abuse that they have suffered. I have provided an undertaking that I will reflect that observation back to panel members, and as set out in our submission, uh, this is a matter that the Board's Training Insight Committee is currently reviewing to ensure that as far as possible, only empathetic and trauma-informed language is used. The issue for us is, uh, and the researcher that spoke first highlighted, is that we, we, we walk a very fine line between being robust and credible and being empathetic. We always have the difficult and sensitive task to explain on some occasions why an applicant did not demonstrate on the balance of probabilities that they had met the requirements of the Act, or why the panel has come to a particular conclusion. That is important because the reasons given may in any particular case provide the basis for an appeal on either the decision itself or the quantum awarded or both. Feedback from the organizations who have experienced a variety of redress schemes have identified to us, positively I'm glad to say, that we have achieved the right balance and have seen and have been helpful in providing and uh, improving our performance in that particular area. On the question of the value of awards which has been raised today, we, we have very publicly set out our evaluative approach to determining the value of awards within the financial range which is available to us. The reality is that each application is unique, it's assessed on that basis, but in the final instance, we are constrained within the cap of £80,000, which is imposed by the Act. Ian, could, could I be as rude to just gently interrupt? Generally, there's about a five to ten minute presentation followed by questions. We're, we're heading towards 40 minutes at your presentation at this stage. Is there any way that you could get through yeah. the presentation and we can move to questions, which I think would allow a good opportunity for us to interact. Certainly. Well, as, as I was saying, the reality is that we have uh, a cap that we have to operate within, and that was one which is imposed upon us. We can, we can do nothing about it. Consistency of decision-making is something which is also raised against us. I just wanted to assure the committee that that is something we are mindful of. We address that through regular meetings with panel members. We share relevant appeal decisions, highlighting interpretations of the law. We look at examples of the banding guidance, but more importantly, perhaps the committee would be uh, happy to understand that we rotate panels on virtually a weekly basis. So that information is shared across all of those people uh, who are hearing ACT. Um, 
In terms of the question of updates, as I've said, that is a difficult one for us. We have come into from criticism, uh, for, obviously, because we, we don't interact directly with applicants. Part of the reason for doing that is because we, we do respect the client solicitor privilege. We are conscious that solicitors are providing applicants with advice, both in terms of whether they should come to their address board, whether they should pursue civil litigation, um, whether they should uh, submit medical evidence or not. Those are questions we, we really cannot get involved in. Um, there, is a, there is a distinction to be made between providing information and providing what has been described as a help desk. The reality is that when you've got 95% of applicants who are represented by solicitors, it is very difficult for us to do other, anything other than provide information. And we created an online portal which provides 24-7 access, 365 days a year to solicitors for that very purpose with a view that they then could update their clients as frequently as, uh, as necessary. Uh, if I could just come to a close in relation to the wider implications, uh, which I've highlighted, um, the reality is that we, if given the legislation that we have, we do have a very wide constituency. That uh, constituency is increasing. It's bringing in applications from uh, uh, applicants which we never really intended, I don't think the legislation ever intended, and uh, all of that we have to react to. But the reality is that uh, we have got to work within the, uh, within the confines of the legislation. I, I know that a review has been suggested, we are very happy to work with that, um, but in the absence of any terms of reference as to what that review might look like, uh, we can't say how it would impact upon our processes. Um, if I may offer a view, if there is to be a review, I think that review needs to be all-encompassing. Where I think there have been gaps is the provision of a beginning-to-end service in terms of the provision of support for victims and survivors. And I would include that in, in that also the question of financial advice for applicants who are successful and get compensation. I'm conscious that we have now paid out 19 million pounds of public money. I, I see no evidence of people getting support around that uh, investment decision or what they do with that money uh, when it leaves the redress board. And I think that is a gap in the, in the provision of information. So, so Chair, sorry if we took longer than we were allotted. But uh, I, I'm very happy for us to pick up on any questions that you or the committee may have. In fact, thank you very much for that. Um, I suppose just conscious we're halfway through our third hour of the committee hearing, and I don't want to lose people as we uh, get get to this stage. But I thank you for that that presentation. I want to maybe begin by, uh, as I did at the last session, of just remembering that at the centre of this are victims uh, and survivors. Uh, and that we must always take uh, in, into the forefront of all of our minds when we're having these conversations is that those uh, individuals, the life experiences that they have had, uh, the trauma that they've experienced, uh, and that we're all here collectively through all of our work to try uh, and mitigate and address as best we can uh, those, those individuals and to help and to be supportive. Uh, and in that spirit, all remarks that will be made by the committee uh, are meant in, in, in that way. 
Um, I suppose we, we have worked over the years, or over the last 18 months, sorry, with uh, a number of groups. Uh, in fairness, we've not always been able to work collectively with the groups, but one thing that they have collectively worked around is their uh, impressions, their views and experiences with um, the redress board. And I accept entirely uh, what you said during your opening remarks, that there are legislative constraints that are very prescriptive and they tell you exactly what you must do. Uh, there are some latitudes to allow you uh, to make decisions about what you do. And then I think maybe you will be uh, and others are wholly in charge of how you approach that uh, as individuals. But one, I, 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 whenever we ask for submissions from the groups, um, what we receive from them is very powerful. You heard two of the representatives uh, earlier. And in one of the written submissions, and if I can just take a second to read four or five lines, and this is a direct quote from them, we would put it to the committee, that is us, that the language used in the victim and survivor determinations is extremely highfalutin, legalistic, offensive, and derogatory, and without doubt is re-traumatizing some victims who feel the language used is equivalent to calling them liars or to suggest the panel does not believe them. And again, they say that it is our collective view, the president and panel members seem to lack any clear understanding or any empathy towards victim survivor experience and are unable to truly appreciate how we feel or think. Now, I accept that that's, that's harsh, I accept that, but I, I'm simply relaying what we are given as evidence, which from our perspective has to have equal weighting to what we've received from yourselves as evidence. And when we reflect on what we were told earlier, uh, from our assembly research team, you know, and, and you know, then marry that against what we're being told by some of the groups that they feel some of the stuff is du duplication of heart, you know, that it's too complicated a process, it's too long a process, there's the lack of empathy, they would like the oral hearings, um, they would like better forums between the stakeholders. I suppose if we're all in that space, but in different ways, and I think you may have referenced this, do you feel that a review would be useful to try and tease out what some of the issues are and to try and address them if that included that um, prescriptive legal constraints that you may be under? Well, Chair, I'm at something of a disadvantage because I don't really know what consultation happened before this Act came in. Uh, I am aware there was consultation. I'm aware that there were changes between the draft bill and the, the final act. I, as far as I am aware, that was to take on board some of the co-design issues, issues which the board, which some of the groups had raised, issues which um, uh, indeed politicians had raised. To what extent have they looked at other schemes? Uh, I, to be honest, I don't know. Uh, is there, are there lessons to be learned? Well, of course, there are always lessons to be learned. As I've said, we have tried to learn from what other uh, similar boards have done in other parts of the world. So we've looked at what Australia has done. The statement of experience, as I've said, the one which we had adopted prior to the revised one was pretty much a copy of what they did in Australia. We have tried to improve it to make it easier, I feel, that people can tick the boxes in the legislation uh, to give and target the evidence uh, in terms of their application. So 
we are we are doing our best to try and uh, and make it as simple as we can and on the question of the use of language as i've said you know we constantly are training the panel members we try to use um, language which does not re-traumatize people but in some cases i acknowledge we do have to give messages and determinations which people are not ultimately happy with we, we need to do that and we try and do that in an empathetic way. Uh, we, we have taken soundings uh, outside Northern Ireland. Uh, the Child Migrants Trust who has experience of Australia uh, were the, the group that I alluded to. They feel that we have the balance appropriately right. I, I'm not saying that's perfect. I'm saying we could certainly consult with others to see if we can improve upon it. But at the end of the day, in, certainly in terms of the statement of reasons, we have to give enough explanation so that if someone wants to appeal, they have a ground to do it. How will we address the point though, um, and you know, if almost all the groups are saying of their experience that it's re-traumatizing people, is, is that not a clear indication that we need to do something differently? Well, just on, on that point, as I've said, we, we don't, if people don't want to put in a statement of experience, that's fine. If they want to rely on their heart statement, which they've already given, absolutely no issue. Some of the, some of the information which I have received, uh, which I've alluded to, which has been most helpful, has actually been up, um, statements not by the applicant themselves, but written on their behalf by maybe a daughter or a wife, because in a way that gives a much greater context to uh, what uh, the circumstances of the family and what they have observed uh, in terms of the impact of an individual. I absolutely welcome the introduction of the concept, if it, as, as I understand it, that VSS are going to work with people to help form that uh, statement of experience in, in a way that people feel comfortable with. When I was alluding to the you know, beginning to end process, I think that piece has been sadly lacking. Uh, there only have been either applicants do it themselves or they go to a lawyer. I, I think the interaction between VSS and perhaps a lawyer will certainly improve that process. But my understanding is that that was only commissioned on the 1st of June. So we have not seen how that might work and operate in practice, but very happy to work with Margaret Bates and her team to make sure that that is that, as she called it in her evidence to you, that pathway is much more clear and coherent. That coherency has not existed. And the reality is that some of the statements which we get, some might be many pages long, others might be five lines. It's very difficult for a panel to come up with a sensible decision if all they are being provided with is, is five lines in relation to an application for what, what is, a, is compensation. Sure, may I just add as well, um, I think, important to acknowledge that for many folk they're coming through to the redress board this may be the first time they've disclosed so that and they've been carrying this and we use the term don't we historical abuse we know there's nothing historical about it if you're a victim survivor the pain's raw it's recent so i think to get that absolute good intervention support a bit like an acknowledgement for a model where you're taking your time with an applicant, where you're slowly taking them through those life markers, but it's not done in an hour, it's not done, it's over a series, and you are trauma-informed, so it's someone who's got a health and well-being um, background. 
I think that would be absolutely key for any uh, victim survivor that's coming forward, the redress board, to have that support. Well, I certainly welcome that the, you know that everybody is is pulling in the direction of not wanting to re-traumatise those individuals that have been involved in the process, and I think we need to to continue to do that. But if I can finally ask a question, you had referenced the number of um, t t opportunities that you've had to meet with the various groups. Have you like? Could you give us any examples of things that have changed as a result of meeting the group, where maybe that group has indicated something, and you've went off and thought, "Yeah, that that's there's something that we can do there." And um, I suppose maybe just to illuminate for us that, that that isn't just a simple lip service process of of you know meeting people, listening to what they're saying, and then moving on. Has there been any uh, work carried out? Well, the, the, the changes to the statement of experience was informed by part of those discussions. And, and that was to, in reality, what we were getting was just maybe a page or two pages of text. Didn't try to really explain whether it was physical abuse, sexual abuse, whether it, the impact that that had, how frequently it happened. So we have deliberately broken that down to, to shadow the requirements of the Act so that it hopefully is easier for applicants, but also means that panels can see exactly what applicants are saying under each of those headings. And, and that is that, I think, has made the process. I think it was uh, uh, John earlier who, who referenced that, that that is, a, that is something which is viewed as positive. It's a small step, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's a step in the right direction. But it's a case of constantly trying to improve. Okay, um, I'm going to pass on to some of the committee members now. So I'm going to ask for Trevor Lund to be brought up into the spotlight and then pass over to Trevor for some questions, please. Trevor. Yes, sir. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, everybody, for your presentation today. It's been very interesting. Uh, I want to ask you just about process in terms of the information, the application provided by the applicant and the evidence that you might ask for from the institution involved. Um, to, to, to what extent would the applicant's allegations be shared with the institution? And, and conversely, to what extent would the institution's rebuttal or explanation uh, be shared with the applicant and when? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very good question, uh, Trevor. The, the, the reality is that uh, if an institution replies, should we say negatively, to an allegation made against it, then as part of due process, and it is a fundamental principle of natural justice that we have got to share that allegation with the applicant or his legal advisor so that they can see what the allegation is and then they can respond to it. And that is the process that we adopt. Now that does not happen in every case, in fact, if I'm being honest, it's, it's actually quite rare that it happens. Mostly the information coming from an institution is, uh, yes, the applicant was there between these dates and these dates. Those dates may vary from what the applicant has put in. To be honest, we don't really pay too much attention to that because of the, the you know, memory lapse over what is quite a long period of time. But if there, certainly if there are allegations which we feel need to be shared, then we will share them and we take on board the response. And if, if they, uh, thank you for that, if, if the institution came back and denied that uh, the allegations were correct, 
And it would, at what point in the process would that be shared with the applicant to enable them to respond to it? Well, if, if, it, was a, if it was a fundamental issue of, well, let's call it credibility, then that is something which the, the panel chair would have to decide whether it is it falls in the category of exceptional circumstances to have an oral hearing. Right, okay. Chair, these, are very, these are very rare circumstances. Okay, thank you. Uh, Chair, just one more quick one about appeals, if you don't mind. Uh, the the 21 day time limit for appeals has come under criticism today, as you probably heard. Uh, I, I noticed in the written presentation uh, or evidence you gave us that there is scope, I think, for time extension. But they can't unfortunately get the time extension details to open on my computer. So perhaps you could, I just want to ask you really. Uh, and, and what circumstances might you agree to a an extension of the 21-day limit for appeals? Well, in, in practice, what we, what we acknowledge is that if someone has indicated that they are going to appeal, uh, mm -hmm. we allow them time to put in the appeal notice. So we acknowledge that COVID and everything else may, uh, may have impacted, so, so we take that into account. But, but can I just say on the 21-day period, now I, again, I had nothing to do with that. The 21-day period is the same period of appeals that they operate in the civil courts. So I'm only guessing, but that is probably where uh, that came from uh, in the legislative drafting. Uh, because in any other civil case, if you're appealing, you have 21 days within which to, to lodge your appeal. I, I can't comment definitively but that uh, I'm assuming is where the 21 days originally came from. But then in conclusion, then you, you have some discretion as regards the, the time extension if, if a notice has been given that there will be an appeal within the 21 days. Well, th that is the practice that we operate. Ah, okay. Thank you very much, Nikki. Okay, I'm going to ask for Pat Sheehan to be brought up next then. Pat, if you're there, please. Yeah, thank you, Chair, and uh, thanks to the members of the board for their evidence here today. Um, Ian, in your presentation, you said there were some contradictions in the legislation. Could you explain to us exactly what those contradictions are, please? Thank you. Um, I, I could, Pat, but I need, I need to sit down with the Act in front of me and go through it line by line. Uh, there, there are inconsistencies, uh, which I have pointed out to the executive and the uh, departmental lawyers. Um, I, I don't quite know how they crept in, uh, but there are certainly in, there are inconsistencies in terms of, um, well, so for example, if you're dealing with a deceased applicant, uh, the legislation technically permits multiple applications, which uh, kind of ignores some of the issues of succession law that we that we already have so there are there are contradictions in terms of how those issues are dealt with i have drawn them to the attention of the department but that's just to give you give you an example so it it, um, it becomes more of a judgment for us to determine who is the proper person to make an application where someone has died and how that compensation is to be paid and, and that is something which uh, speaking candidly, I think ought to have been dealt with in the legislation more clearly. And I mean, you also mentioned uh, earlier that any review must be all encompassing. 
And would that in, uh, include a review of the legislation, given the inconsistencies that you have highlighted here? Well, Pat, that's not really for me to say. I, I just see that I think the, the, the process from beginning to end, uh, the very fact we're having this session this afternoon shows that there are kinks in it. Now, those are kinks which either were not thought through sufficiently well in advance of the, the, the redress scheme and everything being launched, or, or it doesn't pick up on some of the, uh, the stages. So the pathway that uh, Margaret Mason has talked about, ma making sure that all of the collective pieces are in place so that there, there, are, there is support for people who want to make an application, there is a, a legal advisor who helps frame that uh, in a way that meets with the, with the legislation itself. The panel determines the application, and as I've alluded to before, the provision of financial advice uh, when, an, when an award is made. I, I can see that there is a coherent potential throughout all of that, but I don't think it's operating like that at the moment. Okay, okay, thanks for that. And just, just to move on then, um, one of uh, the witnesses earlier, Jerry McCann, um, stated that he believes some applicants would prefer to make an oral submission to the board rather than make a, a written uh, submission of experience, a written statement of experience, beg your pardon. Uh, does the facility exist for that to be accommodated? Well, again, the legislation provides for exceptional circumstances. The whole I, and I've looked at this, I've looked at this in terms of heart, I've looked at it in terms of the original draft legislation. The intention seems to have been that if, if this is done on the papers, then it will be a less traumatizing experience. I, I, I think, as John also picked up, the reality is that if, if there are a large number of personal uh, oral hearings, then that will definitely add to the time scale within which this scheme has to operate. That's just a reality. Yeah, and, and, and I understand that many of the victims want this process to be uh, moved forward as quickly as possible and don't want any further delays. In fact, that was one of the reasons why we didn't amend the legislation to raise the cap on the level of compensation that many thought it, it would... Uh, result in an undue delay in this process taking place. But, I mean, Jerry made the point very strongly that um, there, there does appear at least to be a perception among the victims' groups that there's a lack of empathy on the board. Uh, and, I mean, this issue of, of applicants making an oral submission to the board would mean that they could see the emotion, they could hear the emotion, uh, and they would have a better understanding and be able be able to empathise more with victims. And and although you have said that it could be accommodated in in special circumstances or exceptional circumstances, uh, it, and, and I take on board John's point about a delay. I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, and I don't think anyone is suggesting that all applicants or all victims would want to do this, given that it might be traumatizing. There are other uh, victims who might find it cathartic, for example, 
to be able to give evidence in person uh, to the board. So is, is that not something you could consider? But you see, that's what I, when I say, if we, if we engage with VSS and, and see, as uh, um, Beverly has already said, that almost like the acknowledgement form, if there is a process whereby you know, they, they meet with VSS and their lawyer, they have that discussion and then present their case that then they could they could make the application for an oral hearing but i have to say my experience of the applications which we've dealt with is the vast majority and i mean the vast majority of them do not want to have any form of appearing in front of a panel of three people to to present their case they they do seem more more comfortable providing their evidence on written submission when it has been offered on one occasion uh, the, the person elected in the end to provide a sworn affidavit, which frankly kind of countermanded the whole the whole idea because uh, it, it then became, uh, you know, well, my lawyer will attend to present my statement of experience, which defeats the whole purpose of it, frankly. Uh, and there's no, there is no benefit in a lawyer appearing in front of us to read someone else's words. That's not a helpful uh, scenario. So uh, it, it, those things do need to be considered. Yeah, and, and I accept the last point you're making, and I don't think that was the point that uh, Jerry no, no, was no, making. No. But, yeah. but I, I think I think Beverly's point about the acknowledgement forum, working with the VSS, working then with your solicitor, and and then coming up with uh, well a more fulsome uh, statement of experience may be one solution to that issue. Okay, thanks for that. And I've just one final short question. Um, I'm sure others want to come in. Uh, you say in your written brief to us that 35% uh, of applications uh, didn't contain the necessary information. And you also say here today that 95% of the applicants are represented by solicitors. Um, so there seems to be some communication problem between the board and solicitors, and is there any way this can be resolved? Thanks. Well, what we've done, Pat, is, um, and I, I'm probably saying this against my former profession, but we, we've created literally a checklist so that they can tick the boxes to make sure they've filled, they've provided all of the information. And we're talking about, like, some of it is purely formulaic, it's providing birth certificate, marriage certificate, uh, grant of probate, etc. Others are evaluative, so that if they want to supply medical evidence, that's their choice. It's not, a, if they feel that the evidence would be better supported by a medical opinion, then that is something which the solicitor can decide whether or not to submit. Um, it, but fundamentally, we've created a checklist which it frankly is very straightforward and anyone could uh, check whether they have uh, complied with the rule four requirements <laughs> i don't want to be criticizing the legal profession either but uh, if 35 percent of the applications are incomplete and 95 percent of the applicants are represented there seems to be a problem there somewhere i'm, I'm not blaming you either sorry just in case you want that. Uh, <laughs> There's a debate I probably don't want to get into, Pat, but um, uh, I, I think in fairness to some, they, they are deliberating whether to go down a civil route 
or whether they want to procure medical evidence. I, I'm only guessing though, I can't, I can't possibly comment. The, the reality is we send out reminders every four to six weeks to find out what the, what the update is, but that is, that is the position we're in. There's 176 applications which are sitting there which we can't do anything with. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you, Pat. If we could ask now for Martina Anderson to be brought up into the spotlight for questions, please. So over to yourself, Martina. Uh, thank you, Colin, and, and thank you to the President and, and also to Beverly. Can I go back to the issue of the 21 days uh, for appeal? Because I, I just want to try and understand this. Does that also apply to the offer of an award? You know, if a respondent um, to of an award, if they don't accept the award, um, are they told that the award could be withdrawn and lost? Because given the vulnerability of some of the applicants, then that would seem unfair. And equally, if I could ask in relation to the 21 days, um, if I'm told anyway that some of the applicants appeal an award, that they're informed that a deduction in the award might occur as a result of an appeal. So okay. Those things would concern me if true. Yeah, there are, there are two things. Uh, the first is on the 21 days and the, I think what you're saying is, do they lose the award? Uh, the reality is that quite often we have to give it, we have to give an extension simply because the solicitor or applicant has not come back to us within the 21 days, but we give that administrative extension and we have to do it by one of the judicial chairs because that's the way the legislation operates. But that is it's more or less a routine extension to allow them to avail of that offer. So, so that issue is a is a is a non-issue. Uh, the, the the second question which you raised was uh, uh, remind me again. Sorry, Martina. Um, I was asking you if if um, if someone appealed, you know, an applicant appealed their award, are they told that they could get a deduction in the award as a consequence of the appeal? Well, the way, the way the legislation is drafted, it's a total reconsideration of the case. So that is a possibility, which they have to obviously be, they have to be taking their decision on that informed basis. But the, the appeal process is such that uh, it is a possibility that on a reconsideration, the appeal judge takes a completely different basis. Now, that has never happened but it is a possibility. And obviously people need to be warned that that is a possibility uh, under the legislation as it currently sits. You can imagine after listening to the victims and survivors and after listening to John and Jerry today and others, Margaret and others who have contacted the committee and we have read uh, statements and you know we've been listening very attentively to what they've all been saying that for many of them, they would view that as an inbuilt deterrent, um, somewhat of a threat that if they, for instance, were not satisfied with the ward, that they may lose it. And I think it builds into the experience that some of the victims and survivors have, have told us. Can I ask you in terms of... Um, Sorry, the, can, I be, can I be clear on that point? I, we, we have to operate the legislation. That's what it says. So we have to... We, we weren't responsible for creating it. We just have to operate it. So, you know, we can't, we can't ignore that time limit. That's what's in the act. Yeah. 
No, I'm conscious uh, of what you said earlier and, you know, nothing being in terms of an intention on your part to make victims and survivors feel as they feel. But given that we're hearing from victims and survivors around, say, for instance, issues of communication, lack of, uh, do you think that a direct contact in the, in the redress board, such as a, a case manager, uh, to, to check the process of the claims for, for victims and survivors uh, would help in some way address some of the issues that have been, uh, that have been given to us and uh, that have been discussed here today. You know, how can it be that, uh, that it's victim-centred if, for instance, there's no mechanism or no meaningful engagement? Well, I, I did try and touch on that earlier on, but I, I, the difficulty that we have is we've got 95% of applicants who are legally represented. We do not know what advice or what their solicitor has told them in terms of how best to proceed with their application. And that includes proceeding through a civil court. It also includes, has, have they given any advice about uh, the provision of medical evidence, etc., to support their application. So uh, in terms of providing bog standard information, that is a possibility that we could look at, and I've raised that with TEO, but people have used the term helpline or uh, we can't get into that territory because we can't be someone who's giving help on one side and adjudicating on cases at the same time. The most that we can give is your application has been lodged, we're waiting on a medical from your solicitor or we're waiting on further information. And I suppose my frustration is that if 95% that, if, if are represented by solicitors, my frustration is why are the solicitors not providing that information? That's, now, as I've said, I've asked TEO to see whether they could look at a technical solution. We have nothing to hide. So if, if they can find a way that maybe someone could even look at their own uh, online application, absolutely delighted with that. Uh, what, I, what I do not want is the staff getting drawn into a conversation about the merits or the, the nature of the application, because that's, that's where we cross a line uh, into providing advice and, and we just can't do that. I think whether it's a technical solution or some kind of human interaction, um, I think that's going to be absolutely necessary, given the complaints uh, from the applicants, which are very disturbing, and I'm sure they are for yourselves as well. And, and they are, yeah. no, they are, of course, we're, and, and okay, we have we have raised that with the department as to um, you know, it, it, I may say it was part of the initial gateway review that issue was looked at. The gateway review decided that uh, you know a, a telephone access point was not appropriate. Um, I've gone back to the department in light of the conversations that we've had and the experience to see is there a technical or other solution that we can come up with uh, to meet the requirements. But I am, I, I repeat, uh, I'm very cautious about it's providing information. It's not a helpline. That, that function has got to be elsewhere because we, we can't be providing help and adjudicating at the same time. Mm. Well, hopefully, look, hopefully that can be ironed out and something can be resolved because I'm sure it's equally as disturbing for yourselves as it is for us as committee members who are scrutinising this to listen to victims and survivors and listen to their testimonies again today. And this has gone on a long time. You mentioned earlier that you were willing perhaps to meet 
uh, more than six monthly and this has been currently the case and you talked about the statement uh, of experiences and we had an interesting presentation you might have heard earlier uh, which we looked at other sort of redress boards and the work that had been done and you had mentioned yourself Australia uh, so in, in that process the applicants can circle relevant words and phrases providing um, you know the description of the impact of the abuse and and this is uh, given that it is a more I think a victim centered and trauma informed approach would something like that and or is that even possible within the legis legislative framework that you're operating in so that people could find the language with within which they could present to yourselves and that would enable you and um, to make a determination based on knowledge that they are providing yes well just going back to the australian model like the 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 issue that you mentioned yes you can tick boxes but that's only limited to the impact. So you basically select one of a number of impacts which you may feel, so that could be drinking too much, it could be not being able to socialize, it could be anything, you've got, a, you've got a selection. But you still have to submit a statement of experience, which is a text format, uh, which frankly was what we had originally based our statement of experience on before we changed it to provide the breakdown that I mentioned earlier. So. It's not an alternative, it's just one feature of the Australian form that you, you, you can take what the impact the abuse has been. You still have to provide a written statement of what your experience is. Yeah, well, I think we need to find a mechanism through which the victims and survivors feel heard, valued, engaged with, and whilst the process as it is set up uh, may necessitate them to work through a solicitor. Uh, they also want to be, or, or some of them, uh, want to be involved and engaged with, and that's something Beverly, I think, for yourself with your own experience, um, could bring value to an outcome here because we need to find a way of addressing the problems that are being presented to yourselves and to yourselves. But look, thank you for the presentation. Well, uh, just, just to finish on that, I, I do think, I will say it again, I think the introduction of Margaret Bateson and her team at that very early stage is invaluable to that piece, frankly, because it, it allows that to happen in a way that maybe hasn't been happening sufficiently up to this point. And I think also, you know, just to say as well that this is one part of, of the journey. We know it's the final part of the journey for many victim survivors, but making that statement is a big ask, a huge ask. And when people are reading that, you know, their life experiences, they're in black and white. And then the fallout from that, because they're dealing with the redress board, but also after that, you know, that this doesn't go away. No. So making sure that people have got that ongoing support that they need, because it, it, it's, it's not straightforward and stopping. It's very, very much about as and when people need it, and they've been carrying this for decades. Yeah, yeah. and sorry, could, could I, I don't want to take up any more time, but could I just give you one personal experience? We had a panel session no later than yesterday involving five siblings, and it was very interesting to the panel that not one of the siblings actually had the same story. And some of them were obviously, well, there was still a, they, they had all met, they had all discussed their experiences, but notwithstanding that, in terms of the applications that they were uh, putting forward to the panel, uh, some of them had clearly deliberately chosen not to include some information that others had included. 
So you know, we can't legislate for that. That is something which needs to be done at, as I've said, DSS or equivalent, so that they have the opportunity to, to, to assess that in a way that we, we really can't. Yeah, because not everybody can disclose in the same way. Not everyone is going to be able to reveal and open up and be able to cope with that after doing so. And sometimes when, when you open up a Pandora's box like that, as Beverly has said, that person is left then living with the consequences of doing so. So yeah. we all understand the, you know, what, what's at stake here, but we need to make sure we have the wraparound support. And I am concerned just at, at this moment in time that the experience that the victims and survivors are having with the redress board is not a good one. So we need to just find a way of addressing that ourselves. Okay, thank you, Martina, if that's, um, thank you for that. I'm just going to ask now if George Robinson could be brought up just to check if George has questions that he'd like to check out. George, over to yourself. Chair, uh, I'm fine. Um, most of the questions have been asked. Uh, of, of the board that um, I would have been asking, so I don't want to prolong the meeting any longer. Okay, that's perfect. Right very much indeed, and much appreciated. Um, okay, look, um, Ian and your team, thank you very much indeed for coming along and giving us that update today. This is obviously a very sensitive and difficult issue, um, and it's one that we need to get right. Uh, and I think at least we can determine after all of our meetings today that we're all in the space of wanting to get things right. It's just how we achieve that. And certainly the committee will continue to see its scrutiny role uh, as ensuring that it does all it can to ensure that we get to that stage of having things as, as correct as we possibly can. But can I thank you for your time, your preparation and your contributions for the committee this afternoon. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Kirti. You. Okay, members, then if we can bring uh, members up into the spotlight, then we can progress. We'll finish with this issue and then we can progress with the, the rest of the meeting. And if I can ask, just appeal to people at this stage, if you can stay with me for another 10 or 15 minutes, because there are a couple of decisions that need to be taken and we're just core it as we are. Um, our, our first uh, issue that we need to decide then is after the presentation if we would progress with the committee motion to the House which has been scheduled for the week commencing the 5th of July. Will members agree that that's a, a debate that might be worthwhile having? Uh, yes, sure. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I was just waiting to see if you were going to breathe out there, Pat, you breathed in. Chair, <laughs> sure, there, there, there was a lot in that session there, um, and I would really like to get a look at it on Hansard uh, before we go into a, a, a debate on it. Um, I'm not asking for the, the motion to be scrubbed or anything like that, but I'm wondering... Uh, could we wait to do an analysis of, of what has been said today uh, and, and see where we can take it? Um, you know, there, there, there was a lot to take in today, and, and I'm not sure in my own head exactly uh, where things stand in all of this and what improvements can be made to the whole process. Uh, I mean, we, we listened to very... Uh, 
forthright and emotional evidence from Jerry and John beforehand. And, and then we got a more, I suppose, clinical and intellectual input there from, from the board. Uh, and I suppose the most important thing is to ensure, even, even as Ian Huddleston said there, to, and, and quoting Margaret Bateson, that we ensure there's a proper pathway there for victims uh, to deal with this whole process. And I'd, I'd like to hear your own views on it, you know, and I understand uh, the reason why you've brought this review forward, um, or sorry, the motion forward. Um, and I just wonder, is, is that the best way forward or should we thrash this out a bit more among ourselves beforehand and maybe uh, look at the Hansard, see what we can do? What do you think? Um, Trevor, I know he's looking in there as well. Um, I suppose I, I continue to think that if the groups are asking us for this review, I mean, that that's where I'm taking my lead on this. And, and I kind of get a sense that there's almost like three and a half of the four groups are looking for the review. I get, I get a sense three firmly want the review and one would accept the review, maybe not just as energetic about it as the others. And I take what um, Mr. Ian Huddleston said that there are limitations that he has to work with them because of what is prescribed within the legislation. That would be the sort of thing that I would be keen to see examined in a review, that if there are limitations that on the work that they do and those limitations are impacting the groups and the survivors on the ground, then having a, re I mean, a review potentially could iron out a lot of the things that we're thinking of without needing massive legislative review, but it may turn out and say, well, there are things that need to change and it could get those changes, what could help people. Um, because I get a sense that maybe the, 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 the process was put in place with the best knowledge that people had at that stage. We're down the line now and people may just have experiences which may say a, a change here and a change there may make it better. Yeah. And, that's that's where I would be aiming towards, Trevor. What? what yeah, you... just, just come back on a second, yeah, and and I don't disagree. And foremost in all of our thoughts are the victims uh, and and what they want. And I suppose our our only sort of role is to ensure we do what's best for them. And and that's my only issue. I, I mean. We don't want to go into something sort of half cocked again, uh, and and make another mess of it as such. But there there are clearly uh, issues in the process that need to be ironed out and resolved. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're on the same we're we're on the same track. It's it's just a matter of how we get there. So, my uh, other concern is just simply one of time because yeah. The committee meets next Tuesday, it will require to set that motion for the following Tuesday. If that doesn't happen, we're into September. And I don't know if, if many in the sector would forgive us if we waited another three months to, to, to instigate that review, which is a, a, a concern as well. Trevor, you, you looking in there? Oh, well, yes, but uh, you well, actually already said most of what I was going to say, Chair, but uh, the, the 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 big problem over this whole process, the, the word that constantly comes up is delay. 
has been has been one delay after another down the years. Um, I don't think we would be very well thought of if we delayed this until September. So if we're going to do, try and do something about it, we should accept the date that's on offer, apparently, of the 5th of July. And I think we also did get a fairly clear indication. I hope I wouldn't like to misquote Mr. Justice Huddleston, but I think I think he would welcome a review. He did, he did talk about contradictions and kinks in the legislation, and uh, perhaps we should take the hint from him and let's move on with this, you know. Time's of the essence. George, have you, um, do you want to come in there? Uh, Chair, I would agree with Trevor. I, I think the quicker we get it, get it done, the better, in the interest of, of the victims. I think after we listen today, um, it's mind-boggling, quite quite honestly, and I, I, would, I would agree with Trevor exactly what he said. Mm-hmm. Look, if I would summarise, I think where we are, there, there, there's a sense of let's go for, for the committee motion, I think we can all agree that we're not going to go into the, to, to that of it's not going in for a blaming exercise, it's not going in for a finger pointing exercise. It's going in to say that on the basis of our experiences over the last period of time, that there are some issues and concerns, significant concerns with the, the groups on the ground, some concerns been raised by, by those involved in the redress process. And given that we're one year in, it might be a timely process to ask for um, a, a, a review and that we will leave potentially that to the department to decide how it conducts that review and what it does. But the interest for us really is is just getting those issues, those clinks uh, in the system so- sorted out. Martina? Hi, Chair. Couldn't get myself unmuted. Um, I think the point that you made, and we're all listening to the victims and survivors, we just need to ensure that this is done in a very careful and sensitive way. And that um, whatever, you know, when we are calling for the review, that we're mindful of the legislative framework within which the redress board is operating in, the contradictions that Pat tried to tease out, like what do you mean, where are those contradictions and how can those be ironed out? But I appreciate what you said. Look, it's not going to be that people are going to go in here grandstanding. We're going in collectively as a committee to try to make sure that the victims and survivors get what they deserve um, as opposed to, this is not about point scoring. It's not one of those debates or whatever. Sometimes that's what happens. We all, we're all capable of doing that if, if it's necessary. But I think in this one, we just need to be very, very careful with the victims and survivors and uh, that they get the outcome that, that we're all looking for. Well, I, I certainly think that we uh, we will there will be a collective dim view on anybody that goes in to try and score points over this issue. I think it's about all of us working together in the best interest of everybody. So, you know, I think that that's the critical and important uh, task that we have. Look, I think we've got consensus there. So, um, if members are happy, we'll 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 move on then. Um, to item eight, which is the forward work program which is on page 105 of the meeting pack. We are almost, we're just at sort of tentative stages unless it's changed this afternoon since, but um, we are hoping that there should be a time set for us on Monday of next week to have a meeting with um, the European Commission Vice President Sefcovic. 
Um, we're just waiting on getting the finer details of the time sorted out, uh, and hopefully then if we can agree the time, then he'll agree to the meeting. Um, so we're looking certainly at a potential for that on Monday. Um, but if members could make them, if they could let the committee uh, staff know that they're happy to attend that, um, and just given the seniority of attendance, uh, from the European Commission at that we would certainly hope that members could make themselves available for it but I know that the committee staff will, will contact Ryan just to confirm it and then also if we get the confirmation through uh, from his office that he is happy for that meeting but that would be on Monday. Um, also then we are scheduled on the uh, 7th of July we were scheduled to have the first and Deputy First Minister to attend the committee uh, for an update um, I'm kind of thinking, given the current political situation, that that may not be a um, necessarily a fruitful meeting, just given that we would need to have uh, confirmation of who's in, in what role and just sort of how permanent they are in that role. Uh, a lot of what they may or may not be able to talk about may be because of their, the, the length of time of their tenure. And I think maybe for that that purpose, it might be worthwhile if we took next Wednesday as our last committee meeting, and then if we felt that we needed to have a meeting the week after, we certainly could do that. Um, and also, um, we have the programme for government um, was also scheduled for a presentation next week. Officials have contacted us to say that, regrettably, but that there's little that they can do from it, that they don't have a massive update for us because the priority hasn't been and been able to clear or progress or move the programme for government at this stage. Um, so given that, you know, th those circumstances, what I'm suggesting is that if we take next Wednesday as our last committee meeting with the, a requirement for an extension if needed for the following week, and that we don't take the programme for government uh, presentation, but instead schedule it for very early when we're back in September, whenever they will have more to discuss with us, also, as members will be aware, there was the potential for the Culture and Language Act was to progress through the executive office and, and therefore the committee stages and others was to progress through the executive office committee. That was going to be a significant and major piece of work for us in the autumn. So given that that now looks like it's not going to be moved by the executive office and therefore we won't be required to provide that committee stage, that leaves us a gap in the autumn time as to some of the work that we could do. So I thought that if we took our presentation from junior ministers next week, and then afterwards, then we could have a discussion about what we want to set in place for September and for the autumn uh, term. And then if we felt at any stage that we needed a meeting on the 7th of July, we could do it. How does that work with members? Sensible, very sensible, Chair, Thank I you. think. I appreciate it. Thank you. Martina, I think you had uh, said that you had two comments there, maybe just to the last um, element, or do you want to come in at this stage? Oh, sorry, correspondence is it is. Sorry, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're, we're, no, we're, we're, that's coming up next. So then, in terms of uh, correspondence, there are 13 items in the pack. Um, the first is that... Um, we, we've had a bit of a wrist slap from the uh, Communities Committee who feel that they had a major piece of, or a major contribution to make on the High Street Task Force and that they weren't invited to last week's concurrent 
committee meeting. Um, I suppose we'll take that one on the chin. Uh, it certainly wasn't the attention of any of the three committees that were there to uh, shun the Committee of Communities and their work that they've done, the good work that they have done on the High Street Task Force as well. And certainly um, they've asked if any of the papers that we had received in relation to that meeting, if it could be forwarded to their committee. Members be happy enough with that? I'm great. Preface it with an apology for not inviting them uh, last week as well. Um, members, you'll remember that we recall that we had a, an um, SEUPB uh, were with us a number of weeks ago in regard to the Peace Plus programme uh, and details of which bodies or departments are involved in each stage of the process is contained in correspondence. But I would like to seek agreement that we write to the Executive Office asking them to ensure that the approval process for the Peace Plus programme is carried out as quickly as possible to ensure that there are no delays in submission to the European Commission for approval and adoption. Um, Martina? Chair, this is one of the, the matters I wanted to raise uh, today because the Peace Process programme was supposed to be presented to the North-South Ministerial Council, as we know, at the meeting last week, and that was postponed. Uh, because of the UP, of all the shenanigans that was going on there. But, you know, I think we need to write to the SEUPB as well, and we might need to see about trying to outreach to the EU Commission, because you don't use it, you lose it. And it needs to be approved first at the North-South Ministerial Council, and then it goes to the Executive, and then it goes to the SEUPB, and then it gets out to the groups. So Europe is not going to sit just waiting, you know, holding us back, just waiting on us to try and sort out whatever issues that need sorted out at this end. We need an NSMC meeting and we need this cleared and approved at that meeting in order for it to travel the journey so that the groups and organisations in all of our constituencies can get access to that funding. Absolutely, and we, and we were all well uh, briefed from various groups and the problems and concerns that they had, so we don't want to add to them through a, a process that, that causes blockages. So absolutely, we'll, we'll write to the committee or to the department and ask for an update on that. Um, then the final one from itself, the Community Foundation Northern Ireland had asked what action the committee plans to take in relation to asked in relation to three elements. Um, one was to encourage the Executive Office to act without further delay in delivering the NDNA commitment in the context of COVID recovery, ensuring that the current and future programme for government included and further enshrined the NDNA commitment to structured civic engagement. So what I was going to do was suggest that we write to the department and ask them how they are going to or propose to carry that out. The second was that the Programme for Government should recognise the role uh, of Citizens' Assembly and participatory budgeting uh, in helping to deliver the PFT outcomes. I was going to suggest that we write to the Department of Finance and ask them if they're aware of any participatory budgetary processes that are taking place in any of the departments and just to get some feedback on that that we could update on. And the third was that the uh, upcoming Open Government Action Plan contained ambitious commitments on citizen participation, including the greater use of those approaches. That uh, is in the tabled pack today. And I'm going to seek agreement from yourselves to write to the department to ensure that the commitment is in, uh, retained in the next action plan. Would members agree to those actions, which would be definitive actions to what the um, the group had asked from us, and we could go back to them to say that we're carrying them out and then come back to them with the information when we get it? Martina? 
Uh, yeah, Chair, agree with, with all of that. And I think we might want to consider further action because given the way Stephen does research and I think having a raised paper around citizenship, you know, citizens assembly, um, you know, the civic forum here, how it was supposed to be, how it was envisaged, how it actually operated when it was in existence, um, given that you know, I think it's paragraph 17 of the new decade, new approach talks about that civic engagement uh, at the heart of policy making. So I think it would be very helpful to get a research paper to be looking at the actions that, for instance, the Citizens Assembly, what they, what they actually do in, in different places and then what we have as the Civic Forum, which really, in my belief, it didn't turn into what it was supposed to around the participatory democracy and the influence it should have had in shaping policy and what we need to do for, for a new decade, new approach going forward. Okay, members happy enough with that, then we can request that. Okay, are there any other... Can I just comment on uh, 9.8, the EU Commission statement? I'm sure maybe... Some members will have already seen Tony Connolly was tweeting out, uh, everyone will be delighted to hear that the, there's a ceasefire in the sausage war at the minute. The, uh, <laughs> the chilled <laughs> chill meats dead late has been extended until September. <laughs> and as we say, already sausages are delicious. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's any peace money that could be available to help develop the sector as a result of that ceasefire, but uh, yes, definitely. And well done, Pat, for getting that far into that statement without laughing. You did well. <laughs> <laughs> Members, are there any other items of correspondence that you want to raise? Then we can call our meeting uh, to a close. Unless there's any other business, I don't have any other business from anyone. Then the no. date place of the next meeting is going to be hopefully on Monday at some stage for that uh, special meeting and then after that next Wednesday. Members, thank you very much indeed. That was a long meeting today and very intense. And um, thank you very much indeed for your attendance today. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you. 30.